welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania's own Warren. This time, the track Burning Dread. This is off the Condensing Flesh LP, or whatever you want to call it, LPEP, on From Within Records, courtesy of Carter. This is one of these bands that bucked against a system of kids who find obscure YouTube videos and make their entire personality around it. This is pure, unadulterated, in-your-face fucking hardcore. And in a time where a lot of people are trying to remanufacture some gimmick off the internet that maybe 25 people in America knew about, these guys are just blasting fucking all the way ahead. So fucking angry, aggressive, lyrics are on point. And 100% DIY hardcore put out by a 100% DIY hardcore label. And that's getting more rare to say. So, big ups to Warren and to Carter and to everybody who still flies the flag of unmitigated, unfiltered, pure fucking aggression in their shit. Not looking to hit the pop charts with this one. But Warren is absolutely a band that I think we need to get more people into more more fast and aggressive shit in today's hardcore scene. Before we go any further, it needs to be said that hardcore lost one of its greatest champions. Because we wanted to do it, because we really cared about, and we still do care about, the integrity of the music. And that's when I was had, had left, finished college, I was in law school, and still wanted to keep a finger in what was happening, and that's when friend and I started a record label called Combined Effort, and for the same reason, um, there were a lot of bands that wanted to do stuff that didn't want to be with the bigger record labels and make some more money for someone else like this video is doing, but, uh, you know, and that, that, that's a choice for bands to make, whether they want to, uh, it, it seems to be very often justified by getting larger exposure, um, getting their message across to more people college, I was up in Albany, there was not much alternatively going on there, and my friends and I were driving all the hell over the place, up to Syracuse, out to Boston, always coming down to New York City for CB's matinees, and we were just traveling too much, we weren't getting our schoolwork done, because we were too involved with traveling around to see the shows. We decided it was hardcore, we could do it ourselves, we found a hall to rent out, uh, found a sound man willing to work with us and then got the bands coming through and it became a pretty big thing for quite a while towards the end of my, my college time it became a, a real regular stop for all the bands that were coming through that were playing New York City that were playing Boston and, and needed somewhere in between and we did all the black flags suicidal tendencies and all that stuff and the important thing was there was nobody outside involved it was by, run by kids for kids the bands were playing for the kids and there wasn't that barrier there that there is everywhere else. And there wasn't some big company taking our money. Hardcore raises the issues, proposes the solutions, it takes it that step further, and it also has always dealt with things on a much more personal level that we can all do something about. And I, I knew when I started putting on shows, when I did the record label, I was not out to change the world. I knew I wasn't going to change the world. But I could always change, and I think I did change, my part of that world. Dave Stein was 
a huge impact in hardcore. We go back to the GB Youth of the Day guys will tell you from the beginning that they were immediately friends. And he did so much for New York hardcore in general. The excerpt that I just played for you was from the In Effect video. You can find it on YouTube. The In Effect 91 videos, which is Agnostic Front. Gorilla Biscuits, sick of it all. And a combined effort was a fantastic record label. But more importantly, another side of Dave, which if you were involved, you got a little piece of just how great Dave was. Dave would go on to become a lawyer and a music lawyer at that. And throughout his career, from the earliest bands like the Agnostic Fronts and the Murphy's Laws, all the way up through Terror, and even into Year of the Knife and Shattered Realm, Dave would champion us, the hardcore bands, against the record music industry, whatever you want to call it. Um, I had questions a couple of times regarding things and was always told, talk to Dave. He'll always sort you out. He always had time for a call and text, later even an email. In fact, the show uh, really, for the last year or so, was just waiting for to see where his health was because we had been planning to get him on the show. But uh, his passing should show to people that there are so many different avenues and ways that you can help your hardcore scene and the purity of what that man stood for. I mean, uh, when I was helping Year of the Knife, and I say helping because that's the best I could do, it barely help. They were about to sign a record contract, and I wanted to make sure that they had the right people making sure the band was protected. And I had Maddie connect with Dave. Dave took a look at it, and when the label was dealing with Dave, they're like, well, why are you doing this? And he's like, well, they're a hardcore band. I want to make sure they get what they deserve. And he, without his impact on that, would have just, you don't know the direction it could have went. But it's just such a cool thing. This is a man who, for almost 40 years, championed hardcore. And from the earliest bands to the, the current bands. And his passing definitely sucks. And he has um, a legacy that I really wish we would have trapped on this uh, show. So rest in peace to Dave Stein. Um, I was going to go further, but this the intro is a bit longer. This is contemporary, contemporary stuff. In fact, this show is a couple of days late. I actually cut my hand at work with a circular saw, got 10 stitches. Dumb enough to still go into work the next day and help out where I could, but getting home last couple of days really just put me on my ass and I, I couldn't forget the episode finishes. So I apologize to Tony Rettman. I also have to apologize to Nancy. I, I put the show out and just social media sometimes gets me overloaded and I don't have someone on the show. Like all the, there's a lot of podcasts in hardcore now and I commend all of them. They all have a team of people who do the posts and people that help out. I'm still a single one man fucking show here. I got to make the graphic that's going to go up that says the episode's out. I got to do the audio engineering here. And, and, you know, in the Nancy case, I was having a problem with the computer. I have a lap, an old laptop that I used to just do the graphic stuff on, and it was just giving me a problem. And then this laptop, I Bob Wilson actually bought me as a Christmas present because he's my brother. 
The only reason why I'm still doing the show is because the other laptop was fucking dying. And I just basically didn't get the Nancy graphics up to promote it, and that's my bad. But um, sorry to Tony for not having this out on Friday, but it's out now. Our guest, Tony Redman, is a multi-book author, someone who, for a person like myself who is still feeling like I missed out on 24 years of fucking hardcore or more, and have been doing shows for, <laughs> since 1997, without stuff like Tony and his books, people like me who were not there at the very beginning, we, we don't really know. And these little archives, these these pictures in the books, these blurbs... You know, whether you go back to Detroit in the beginning, which was his first book, or into his New York hardcore book, you know, these are these are important things. And then, you know, it, it takes a lot to put time and effort to help expose aspects of the scene. I think he did a great job with the Straight Edge book. There's a lot of different things that come to mind, and there's a lot of back and forth that you can have in the old 90s zine style regarding exposing hardcore in books but I think the important thing is to trap the legacy and have it go on and continue and I think bizarrely that there is a little connection in with this episode and now with the sad passing of Dave Stein where hopefully you younger people who just check out the episodes because you got hip to us take this time now to listen to Dave Stein's words and put it into your own works or check out Tony's books and, and go back and see what the folks who were building up hardcore had to say and I do appreciate people who aren't just trying to make another record label, aren't just trying to do what everybody else does. Um, I got to also say, for those who don't uh, have context, some of the zines that I saw in the 1990s were either absolutely fantastic, amazing, and the high end, and some of this stuff was on the low end, like crappy, and that was kind of have its fun too, but... The, the zines that he was involved with, especially the common sense ones, for the time it came out was absolutely one of like the high-end, good-looking zines, good interviews, etc. So it's cool to be able to talk to somebody who had a lot with documenting hardcore and a local person who had a big um, piece of history right in front of us with City Gardens in front of him at the whole time. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, with this finger on the mend, I plan to still get in the next episode on Friday. And again, apologies to Nancy and to Tony. And um, rest in peace to Dave Stein. And let's go with this episode. So today on the show is a author of multiple hardcore books. Now, following up from Nancy, I thought it'd be cool to stay in the same time frame. Tony has done a lot of service for hardcore in this, from his New York hardcore book to the stuff he did on Detroit, to just everything in general that he covers, to me, is an integral part of what's going to get the kids that are coming into hardcore now to be able to delve far back into the few into the past so hard in these YouTube clips and these TikTok clips to get these kids to understand some of this hardcore stuff. And Tony, you by cool. far have done one of the best jobs as not only as an author, but also as an archivist by celebrating, but also, you know, you really trapped the culture perfectly in these books that you put together. So then um, I'm a big fan of them. I love when, and uh you wrote me a really nice note, and I really appreciate it. I couldn't make it out at the time when you came to Philly, but I did appreciate yeah, the book you gave me. It meant a lot, so I appreciate that as well. Cool. No problem. Yeah. Um, thanks for all the kind words. So uh, let's start with the actual Tony Rettman story before we get into how you wrote about other people. 
Uh, where yeah. what were you, where did you grow up, and uh, what was the scene in your childhood that got you on the path to hardcore punk? Yeah, um, I grew up in a suburb of Trent, New Jersey, called Ewing, um, and I had an older brother. He's twelve years older than me, and he was kind of like, um, you know, stereotypical kind of seventies rocker guy, like. He graduated high school in like late seventies and then went to college and like got turned on to uh new wave punk rock. And uh a guy at the college radio station, he was going to Trenton State College, was a guy who was from Southern California who was telling him about like this stuff going on, like Black Flag and Circle Jerks. And so he got into that stuff and that was kind of my um Intro. way of finding out was through my older brother. Um, and he was there at like, like Nancy, like ground level, like. Yeah. First generation you know, right there. Yeah. Saw the scene first time black flag played at city gardens as Nancy probably. And he got, he broke, he got his leg broken. Uh, the first time circle jerks played the East coast. Like, that's so awesome. you know, yeah, he's got, he's got quite a track record. Um, so he was my, um, whatever portal into hardcore. Um, and from there, like he was already, like I said, he was doing college radio. And then from doing college radio, he got friendly with Randy now, who was the guy who booked city gardens at the time. I mean, this is like, we're talking like 1980 uh, at this point. Um, and so he got friendly with him. And then like, he started working at city gardens. He DJed all the hardcore shows. And so I, I, <laughs> in some ways I'm, I'm very lucky. I mean, in that I just kind of like, waltzed into this uh and got to see a lot of good bands and you know since my brother worked there I'd never had to <laughs> pay to go in you know stuff like that so that was, it was pretty cool no it was pretty that's actually a really awesome fucking way to get in and um can you remember the first time you actually went to a show like what was your actual first show yeah i can um the the again like the whole strangeness of it is technically the first show I would have went to was a show in a, a park in Princeton, New Jersey. And the, the, the band playing was called the Retmans. Oh, it was shit. like, it was Randy now and his brother and somebody else. And it was just like a joke of kind of like, they were friends with my brother, but it was also like kind of taking the piss a little or whatever. Like they just did cover songs and they called themselves the Retmans and they played at a local well, somewhat local public park. So my sisters went, so technically the first band I saw was named after my family, which I think is really says a lot. About. Also kind of surreal if you think about it, you know? Yeah. Um, but then like my brother took me to a few months later, took me to see Black Flag, uh, Black Flag, Saccharine Trust, and October Faction. It was on the My War Tour. Yeah. Um, summer of 1984. I just... Uh, uh, I was I was technically 11. I was turning 12 like in three days. Um, so that was my first real show was going to see that with my brother. And it was like a show that um, Randy now put on. This is before he could do all ages shows at City Gardens. So he was doing it at a place called New York South that was in uh, Florence, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they got all so the that's, awesome Victorian homes and all that shit right there off of one thirty. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like near Bordentown, and that's kind of where 
I think Randy was situated at that time and still is, I think. So he would do the all ages shows at New York South and then do the 21 over shows at city gardens. And then eventually something happened where he could have the all ages shows at city gardens. But um, yeah, that was the first show I went to. That's fucking sick. Now some people, cause they're growing up around it. They don't get as um, uh, excited about it. Cause it's like right in front of them. Was that the case for you? Or were you like, you were never the, like, you know, like the big brother, like, Hey, you're coming along. Or were you dying to see this? Or were you really engaged in the minute you first got around it? Oh no, I was totally into it. Like that's, I think that's the thing is like, yeah, he was my older brother. So, you know, you would like kind of follow along, but I think hardcore is a kind of thing, you know, like you can play it to anybody and either they, it's either a total connection or like get this shit off. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely connected to it then, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I was I was really excited to see Black Flag. You know, I think the whole thing was at that point, you know, my brother still lived at home and he had zines and he had records. And, you know, in some ways, the zines and the records were like a, a weird form of like a comic book for me. Like I would like look at these pictures and be like, oh, like looking at the pictures on like the negative approach seven inch, like these grainy pictures of guys like flying through the air. And I'd just be like, you know, what, what's going on here? Like, so that's that was kind of like what I was looking forward to was like some chaos. And then, uh, and you know, that by that point, black flag and the my war, like that was just on the cusp of them kind of like, you know, taking a left turn and doing instrumentals. And yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that. If you noticed that live when they got to that B side of the stuff they did, the real dirgy, like how, yeah. how was that reacted to? Obviously I, I do the stuff like the SST books and all that, but I always like yeah. to hear firsthand how someone would, actually react to hearing that other side of black flag, like raw and in the flesh, you know? Yeah. Well, I heard, I mean, me personally, my brother had the, my war records are kind of, kind of knew what I was getting into or whatever. Um, but you know, the whole thing, I saw black flag uh, a lot, um, at least like eight or nine times, like, by the time I was 14, That's so fucking I saw, cool. That's I saw Black Flag, Venom, and Overkill. I saw that what? show. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Now, were there, crowds, anyway, were there crowds with that specific show? Were the crowds combined, or did it, was there, like, antagonism because of the, the mix? How was that? Well, that was, like, I want to say that was, like, 1986. So that, like, kind of whatever, like, crossover of hardcore and metal was already, like, whatever. Um that mix had already happened. So there wasn't a, like any antagonism between those two crowds, I think. Okay. And I think both of them, you know, people were interested in black flag fans were as interested in venom as like metal guys were into, you know, black flag at that time. But yeah, the, that first time I saw black flag and all the times after that, it was weird because they were obviously onto something new and the crowd wasn't. So like, it was always this thing of like, Oh, what the fuck is this stuff like with some people? And you know, like I was 12 years old and I was like, Yeah, where have you been? Like, yeah, so there was always kind of a like that kind of like antagonism of people just being like, you know, why why aren't these guys playing like super fast or whatever? Um, and it always felt like they were giving it back twice as hard. Like to me, I mean, I'm not in I wasn't in that band, I don't know, but like what I read was like they were just doubling down like, oh, you don't, you don't like that we have long hair. You don't like that, you know, 
our songs are too long now. Well, we're really going to fucking shove it down your throat. man. like, they, <laughs> they really like to just like the antagonism and shit, which I, I, I like that too. Um, so, you know, they definitely had like a, there was a dichotomy sometimes between the crowd, but then there was like people that were older who had followed black flag from the beginning and kind of went through the, the same changes as them. So they were into it, you know? So uh, yeah, I think it just mattered for the crowd, but yeah, when like a bigger band like black flag or dead Kennedys or something like that would play like, yeah, like people would kind of just show up and cause you know, it was the equivalent of like the sex pistols or something coming to your town, you know, like, People are just like, oh, like it's punk rock. I'm going to dress weird and, you know, go down to Trenton. So what's so cool about Ewing is uh, you got some other people like uh, the McMahons, Tracy, Tim. There's uh, there's tons of people that just because they were so close to them. I mean, it's like a circle off of and you just drive and you're in Ewing to from the part of Trenton (laughs) where where the club is. So there's so many people in that general vicinity that were. I always, I always wanted to believe that if you were within like a twenty minute drive of that place, you were hip to it because that was like probably the coolest thing in that little area. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and you know, Tim basically, uh, I, I was skateboarding through the neighborhood one day, and I saw Tim McMahon on a skateboard, and I started talking to him, and I just assumed everybody that skateboarded was into punk rock, so I started asking him about bands, and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about and uh <laughs> and then a year later yeah i i created that kid no um but yeah and then i think it just spread from there like all those guys that were in math well all those guys in mouthpiece um you know like i would say like jason the drummer and people like that like tim definitely like hipped them to it and chris and uh, Chris Schuster, the guy that was in Mouthpiece, and I, like, we went to kindergarten together. So, yeah, there's all, like, deep roots in Ewing of that, you know, that, yeah, that lead down to Trenton. So, yeah, it was, um, there was a lot of stuff going on then. And even back in, like, the early 80s, um, there were, like, hardcore bands in Ewing. Uh, there was a band called Feudal Effort, um, CDS. And they, you know, they played City Gardens, uh, Feudal Effort opened up for Circle Jerks at City Gardens. They put on some, like, VFW hall shows. And there was a, a zine called No Place to Hide in the early 80s, like a hardcore zine out of Trenton. So there was, you know, there was stuff going on. It just wasn't, uh, like, as underground or DIY as, like, Philly or other places, you know? There was record stores yeah. close? Did you guys travel for the records? I'm sorry. Was a record stores close, or did was it was it a traveling? Like like, hey, uh, we're gonna make a trip out to this place to go check out records. Yeah. Well, again, I feel like such a, you know, <laughs> you know, our family wasn't rich, but now, like when I talk about this stuff, I feel very spoiled. Uh, along with working at City Gardens, my brother also worked at Princeton Record Exchange. Oh, so you're still a fucking set. Yep. <laughs> like, still works there. So, and that was pretty close. So we could get records there, but we would, you know, if we wanted stuff like, um, like revelation stuff or something that was more DIY or underground, we would go to like Philly record exchange. Chaos was still around. Brew Breaker still had chaos at that point um, in Philly. So we would go to Philly for like more DIY stuff or, you know, more underground stuff. Princeton would have a good selection of stuff. Um, bop, bop, bop. What else? 
there were some other places. And also, you know, like at that time, like, I don't know if anybody's ever talked about this at the time, but like there were good records in the mall to get like listening booth. And like they had, cause again, my brother worked at a, a mall record store before he worked at Prince and record chain. So like there were hit people working there who were ordering imports. Like you could get like, uh, you know, I remember holding up like a copy of DYS brotherhood in like the listening booth at Quaker bridge mall being like, I wonder if this is good. Like, you know, like, so weird stuff would filter into like chain stores too. Was that because um, of the buyers at the stores or was that just because they had distribution? I think they had good distribution. I mean, I think it's a combination of all the stuff. I think it's probably the buyer, probably the distribution. And like, you know, I'm sure a distributor would be like, Hey, if you want fucking 10 copies of the echo and the bunny and LP, you better take two of this fucking black flag record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they had to do a trade-off, so that's probably how weird one-offs showed up in like in the import bins, you know. Which, you know, I I hate to be the old man, and be like stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. But it no, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't really happen that way. <laughs> no, like you couldn't go into like uh, again, like these are all like uh, record fucking record nerd memories. But like walking into like the Tower Records on in Philly on South street yeah. and just in like 1989 or 1990, just like walking up and be like, Oh, like a still sealed copy of the first crash 12 inch. Oh, like, huh. you know, like, like stuff that was just like still sealed that had been sitting in there since the 80, like early eighties. Just like, Oh, I guess I'm the only person that knew about this. Like it's, you know, like shit like that just didn't it, is. Yeah. It's not going to happen anymore. You know, everybody's too tuned in, you know, whatever. No, that's actually a good insight into that. Now, because of that same time frame, you know, you, uh, especially because you did that book in Detroit, were you hip to the English stuff that the Detroit guys were listening to before they even started? Like, what were the bands from England and and were other people from this area getting hip to the stuff that was uh, influenced bands like Negative Approach and stuff like that? Yeah, it's funny you should bring that stuff up because I immediately like, um, like when I got to buy my own records, like I bought like like the the comps like those like No Future yeah. records compilations and the Punk and Disorderly compilations, and that shit was definitely like my brother was like, <laughs> like <laughs> that stuff was like that whole like kind of postcard punk UK eighty two thing was not cool in America or at least to like people who thought they were erudite or like smarter or like thought like American hardcore had it over that because it was like less less of a fashion show or whatever, but I fucking love that stuff. And I still do. Um, so I was definitely into like all that stuff that they were into. And that might've, you know, I might've picked that up as a kid from like looking at zines that my brother had maybe. Um, but I was definitely into like, you know, whatever blitz foreskins, like anything on no future and the ride city stuff. Um, and there were people in, you know, I think the whole thing is like, there are people on the East Coast that were into that stuff. But, you know, I, I think for, uh, I think a lot of people thought they were like the lunkhead people of hardcore or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the violent people or something like that. And I, I did notice that in a way of like, before going to shows um, and buying records and I would buy like, you know, I, I like the exploited or I would like, 
yeah, by like the Angels with Dirty Faces compilation or something like that. And I was like, this shit's cool. Like, you know, and then I would finally started going to shows and like the people that were into like the exploited and like had the exploited on the back of their jacket or something were kind of assholes. Yeah, just like, complete jerk offs, yep. <laughs> yeah, like kind of like violent assholes. So then I kind of got like why my brother was like, that shit's not cool. But it, I don't know. I like the music definitely. And there were definitely people around here who liked the music. Like as far as like, early or like 80s in like jersey or pa uh i don't know i mean trying i'm really trying to like go back but like the only thing i can really think of is like the uprise or something like that yeah like suburban uprise and stuff yep. like that i mean before that maybe like like uh what's his name that dude harpo was that what's his name harpo he was like a skinhead guy from new jersey he was in a band called njf uh I, I want to say he had something to do with that stuff, like that headache records. Yeah. Like Niblick, Bane, yep. stuff like that. That guy probably had a band that was like kind of British influenced or something. And also like in the mid eighties, there was another band like uh, called intent to injure. Yeah. That were definitely like, 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 yeah. Influenced by like the British uh, hardcore stuff. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think like, yeah, there was people there were people that were like you know into like the postcard punk british stuff and then like discharge like the stuff that now is like db discharge yeah. stuff like yeah you, you didn't see I mean, that come until a little bit later on yeah yeah but like i'm trying to think of stuff like that maybe like was a precursor to that in new jersey but nah not really that's like more you like definitely new york with like nausea and sacrilege and all that stuff. Yeah. So at the time when you're finding hardcore, there is the beginning of that thing that was uh, touched upon in Blush's book and the movie kind of where there were people that were already feeling like that first wave was over. Did you feel that and see that? And how would, how what was the takeaway as you were living it? Yeah. De like it, it's weird because I do feel that way. Like when I tell people like, Oh, like when I was 11, my brother took me to see black flag, you know, in night in the summer, 1984, they're like, holy shit and i'm like yeah but man it was just summer 83 like you know like i'm like because it did feel like yeah things were definitely changing and you know all the good band like minor thread already broken up um ssd were going like everybody was going the route of metal and you know so when i came into it i definitely felt like oh man like i think i just fucking you know missed that boat you know and uh or i could but like looking back, it could just me always thinking like I never was there for the right thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I might have might have been the the right time for me to go in. But I was like, oh man, like if only it could have been like a summer before that. Um, because yeah, like that's when things started to change. Like bands were tired of getting playing super fast, so they would start a new band that was a little slower and a little different. Or some bands would go metal or. You know, so I would say there was this period where, like, for that first cut, like, year maybe I was going to shows that I was just, like, you know, like, um, like, I remember a show I was going to see, like, the FUs were playing. I'm like, oh, cool, the FUs. And then it was like, oh, no, they're, they're called the Straw Dogs now. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And, like, it was just total, like, twin guitar metal attack. And I was like, yeah, that's, that sucks. You know, like, it was always seemed like I was like, oh, this band... I remember like this record's cool. And then I'd go see them and they were like metal or they 
changed or something. So yeah, it was definitely palpable. Like you could um, feel it and it was just like a bad, yeah, it was just kind of like a bad time. There was just like a lot of violence too. And um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that cool, but definitely like the New York stuff um, gave it a boot in the ass like that kind of gave definitely was like the restart button for, for hardcore, you know? Um, and it definitely, for me, it was something like, I just felt like, like I said, I missed SSD. I missed minor threat and I was super into the like straight edge thing. So, you know, when I saw like an interview with youth of today and they basically had like this blueprint, like we're going to bring it back. And it's like, we're going to be generic and we don't give a shit. And like, like I was like, sign me up. I was like totally into that. So I was, that was like, yeah, where I kind of like, I guess joined in on the fun of hardcore and like, you know, whatever, doing a zine and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was uh, always the takeaway seems that there are people that say like hardcore have one aesthetic and more of a solidarity overall where towards the end of it, it seemed like the violence they said was coming more from the people finding hardcore shows and towards the end of it in the first wave and they were fucking it up. They were smashing people. They were, they weren't really there for the same reasons. So that's why people yeah. pulled out. And I love that you touched on the youth of today stuff. Cause we talked a lot about that with Civ about what you today did and, and how important what they would do with the record in that first U S tour. And I was actually going to ask you how soon it was before you felt the impact of some of the things that were happening in New York. So it's awesome. You touched on all these things. Did you have any, um, did you have any times where you went up to New York until this time, or you pretty much stayed in Jersey until like the mid eighties, ladies? Yeah. I mean, you were younger. I, I didn't really start going to see shows in New York till maybe like the, like we're talking like 1989. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. Cause you were a kid. You know? Yeah. And like, yeah, we were kids and like New York did s- still seem pretty far away, you know? Um, but yeah, definitely the New York thing made its way to New Jersey, like, like when it was like, you know, Chromags and like cause for alarm era, uh, like agnostic front and Chrome suckers. And, you know, that stuff definitely influenced a lot of people in New Jersey. And, uh, and especially like the, you know, youth of today definitely had, they had something that just attracted a lot of kids from the suburbs to, you know, join in and just, you know, uh, yeah, just totally like give in to like this whole idea of straight edge. So, you know, they, it was really powerful and, you know, eventually, you know, when I think of like New Jersey and New York in the early eighties, it's always like, you know, the goofy suburban vibe of New Jersey against like, you know, whatever the, the urban vibe of New York. But then like, it seems like in the eighties that, those New Jersey bands like, you know, like AOD or the stuff on buyer records and that kind of stuff, like kind of there's, they stick around, but they change kind of whatever change sound or whatever. And then I like New York, definitely when that happens, like New York totally influences, I think like Jersey from like, you know, vision turning point, you know, you know, yeah, that whole, that whole big wave that would come. Yeah. That late eighties wave that, you know, Tim McMahon and I did the zine common sense then. And it definitely felt like it was like right place at the right time kind of vibe of like doing that zine. And then all of a sudden, like, 
you know, vision are getting popular, turning point are getting popular. Like there's release, there's like all these other straightedge, you know, or, and or New York influence bands. So yeah, it was definitely like a, a vibe of the time. Yeah. Now, what was your initial draw to straight edge? I think it was again, like I'm, uh, I'm the youngest of five children and the person who's the closest to me is six years older than me. So I was like a little kid and, and my brothers and sisters were going, going through like that late seventies, early eighties, like stereotypical, like dazed and confused movie kind of vibe. And, um, I don't know, as a kid, like I was, I would witness it and it just seems, uh, like a lot of work. I don't know. <laughs> like my parents would go out of town and they would have a party and then they'd have all the beer bottles and they figure out where they throw away the beer bottles and da, da, da. And like, like as a kid, I'm like, man, it just seems like a lot of effort for, for, or like a lot of work for little effort, you know? Um, so as, just, I guess as a kid, it didn't make sense to me. And then like my brother bringing home like the minor threat records and like SSD, get it away. And like that stuff, like, it totally made sense to me and it made sense to me because like, you know, if you had to boil punk rock down to like it's bare essence or like what it's supposed to be, it's just like, well, it's the opposite of what other people do, you know, like, like normal people do this punks do that. And uh, to me, like normal people drank and, you know, partied. And so as a kid, it, like whose base level, definition of punk was like the, the opposite of what everybody does like i was like oh yeah this makes perfect sense so you know that attracted attracted me to it and then um you know when we go into the later part of the 80s with the the more like youth crew version of straight edge yeah you know it definitely felt like well i didn't get to be a part of that first wave i want to be a part of this and uh yeah, you know, I don't know. It it was very cool in the way of, um, you know, even though I got to see a lot of shows with my brother, I was always with him. Like, I never really made friends. <laughs> so, like, getting into that stuff kind of, like, built up like, um, like a peer group or something. And it definitely felt like, you know, that hardcore vibe of, like, we're all in this together and, you know, support, supporting each other. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty... I mean, I know people have a lot of gripes about like that late 80s straight edge youth group thing. But for me, like I, it did me well. <laughs> so nothing, you know, nothing but good things to say about it. Now, I know you referenced zines a couple of times and obviously I want to get into common sense real quick. Do you recall mm -hmm. any of the zines that really stuck out that were close to us or were you getting your zines from somewhere else? Like, What were the zines that would eventually influence you to start common sense? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, around, I mean, to kind of put a pin in that, like, I think like New Jersey, this area, the area of New Jersey I grew up in, and like PA and Philly, I think had a really strong fanzine scene. Um, you know, here, like in Trenton, we had this guy, John Levine, who did a zine called Faith. Uh, he's now like an art dealer. Uh, and that was definitely like, and he was like the guy in Trenton that wanted to like, have a scene that didn't revolve around city gardens. Like he did like shows at VFW halls with local bands and did this scene faith. That was like very like support your scene kind of thing. Um, and there was a zine called this scene sucks. Yeah. Like we're at the high school, uh, uh, Ewing high school. It was like so many zines that were going on there. There was like, it was like a trend almost of like, 
people doing zines, but like there was like this zine sucks. Um, uh, this guy Eric Zanti did a zine called Stranger. Um, Tim did a zine called Slew before we did Common Sense. I did a zine called I Four and I. There was like all these zines that were being done out of that high school. It's pretty funny, but um, was there but a print class say- or something like that? Is is that wasn't the no, no, it's funny. We didn't that then we didn't we didn't have a printing class. But then Tim and I went to vocational school for printing, and that's like a whole other story of like us going to school at like a Votech school for printing and like just finding all the tools that we needed for to like make a decent looking zine. Yeah, because Common Sense One looks so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Well, that's Tim. That's all Tim. He was, <laughs> he was like four, no, seriously. Like he was 14 years old and would just like looked at an issue of boiling point was like, yeah, I think I got this. And he like just totally nailed it. It's, you know, it's incredible when you think about it now, but so anyway, yeah, there was like a lot of zines going on in Ewing, but for Tim and I, it was definitely like there was, yeah, all these zines started to pop up around New York or New Jersey that, that's centered around like youth crew stuff or straight edge stuff. Like, um, like again, I mentioned boiling point fanzine, which was like the pinnacle to us. Like that was godlike. Like that's what we wanted to do uh, was that zine. And there was that, there was a zine um, called open your eyes. That was out of Seattle done by this guy named John white uh, smorgasbord, Chris Daly. Yeah. Um, man, there was definitely, Oh, um, it's weird, like, uh, there was this guy, uh, Jason Peterson, who's still around. He's, like, a photographer. He was from Arizona at the time, and he did, like, this, uh, like, um, ledger size, like, 11 by 17 double-sided zine called Straighten Your Face that we thought was really cool. Like, Tim and I thought that was, like, just graphically, it was cool. Um, and that's, I mean, again, as a grown man, it might sound kind of lame, but that's where we wanted to fit in. Like, that was the lane we wanted to be in was like to be in, we wanted to emulate those fanzines. So, um, so that's what we did. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were both doing zines separately and then we just both really got into the straight edge thing and like the early revelation records stuff and decided to join forces. And, um, and yeah, like at the time that we did that, like I was saying, it was just when like Turning Point had put out their demo and like Freaking is like they were getting a buzz. And then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, I get the release demo in the mail from the bass player, Greg, who like we didn't even start doing Common Sense yet. It was for the old zine. And he was like, oh, you know, we're sending our demo out to zines and it like totally fit what we were doing in our zine. And then there was enough, this band enough ENUF um, that were amazing. Um, their demo is actually coming out on the seventies soon. Um, yeah, it was just like a perfect serendipitous thing of like all this stuff coming together. Um, you know, like summer of like 89 or, you know, spring, summer 89, the first issue of common sense came out like spring of 89. So, yeah. Now, was this something that you would sit outside of shows and give out? You put them in the record stores? Uh, I, no, I, no, I made people pay for it. Hell yeah. Uh, no, we, yeah, no, we, but it was the old style thing of just walking around a show saying, want to buy a zine? And like, you know, that was basically it. I don't think, you know, uh, there was a zine, a fanzine store in New York called See Here that, um, it was just all zines. It was incredible. 
and they they distributed fanzine. So I know we sent some. See here took some. But I don't know. I'm trying to think of like other distros from that time that would have taken any. But I don't I can't remember any. There must have been, but I don't think so. I think it was mostly just hanging out in front of yeah, hanging out in front of shows, walking up to people, asking if they want to buy a zine. And I think also that's what we were lucky about is like like I was saying, like this whole straight edge thing was like so big at that time in New Jersey that like to walk up with a zine and had like, you know, gorilla biscuits on the cover, like everybody was like super into it. So we were lucky in that respect. Um, but yeah, we only managed to do two issues, but I think it was because what Tim went on to do made the zine a little more legendary or people cared about it more. Cause you know, Tim went on to do mouthpiece and hands tied and the list goes on and on. Now for you, did this really start start um, pushing you in the direction that you would later go with the books? Did you find writing enjoyable? Was that something that would just come from school? How did you start really getting interested in that kind of thing? Uh, I think it was just hard. It was just hardcore in the way of like the first couple, couple of times my brother took me to, to shows, like I didn't have much money because I was a child. <laughs> so what I could buy was like, instead of a t-shirt, I could buy a zine or, you know, like I had enough pocket money for that. So I got more into like zines than like a record or a shirt or something like that. So I definitely like, that's what I clinged on to or like, yeah, like followed in hardcore. And then I don't know, it was, more, it was less like I want to write and more like I want to participate in this. Like, you know, like I think if you look at any early fanzine efforts of anybody from high school, it's not, you know, it's not Lester Bangs, you know, it's, it's not Grill Marcus. So you're going into it more like I want to be a part of this. I'm going to, you know, make something that'll like kind of, uh, you know, get me in there in a, in a way. So, um, yeah, it was more like just doing a zine out of uh, necessity and like kind of like wanting to be a part of the scene. So I don't know, I guess maybe in the same way, like if someone – you know, if, if they start a band in high school and it's, you know, it goes well and they enjoy it, they just keep, they just do a band and another band and another band and another band. And like, in the same way, maybe like Tim was the guy who like, I like being in a band, so I'm just going to keep going being in band till, till forever. Like, I think maybe that was the same thing with me. Like, oh, like, I know how to do a zine. I'll just keep doing zines. <laughs> like, you know. So I, that's how I did it is like, even when I kind of, when I got out of hardcore, I just kept doing zines, but they were about like weird, like avant-garde music and shit like that. So, um, and it wasn't, yeah, to be honest, it wasn't until like my late twenties that I was like, Oh, like, I guess I should keep doing this. Like the like writing rather than like doing zines. So, you know, Honestly, like, I didn't really think about influences on writing or anything like that when I was a kid doing, like, just a crappy hardcore zine, you know? Like, if anything, honestly, like, it would be, like, for that era, it would be Gitter. It would be, like, Mike Gitter. Yeah, with his XXX fan zine. <laughs> like, like, his zine was probably – and that's another zine that was totally influential on both Tim and I because that, again, was, like, a zine that looked really good. Like, the, the layouts were tight. 
you know, the writing was good, like entertaining, you know. So I would say, yeah, like if I were looking at anybody writing wise when I was like a kid, it would probably be um, Gitter. But then like it wasn't until like my early late teens, early 20s that I found out about like all this the stuff that happened in the 70s of like Lester Bangs and Richard uh, Meltzer and like all these guys who kind of like invented rock criticism. Like that's when I started to read that stuff that I was like, oh, OK, like now I get it. And like um, Joe Carducci, is, that guy who used to work at SST Records, did a book called Rock and the Pop Narcotic. And that came out in like the mid 90s. And that again, like a perfect timing, like when that book came out, I read it and I was very like, I want to do that. Like I want to write like that guy writes. Um, so as far as later stuff, I would say like, it, yeah, like it was like reading earlier rock writing that made me think like, oh, like you can expand on this. It doesn't have to be a 50, you know, a 50 word record review that just ends with like, you know, recommended, you know, or like, you know, like it can, you can expand on the writing and like interject some of yourself in it and make it entertaining. And uh, yeah. So, yeah. Now, when I think about, if you have this whole zine platform that could either be like used for mediocrity and just follow what everybody else, or it could be a basis for stuff that like how you would take and go with it. Um, speaking just on the scene side of things real quick. So in 89 is like the crest, the high crest for straight edge hardcore. How did you and the guys around you feel when like the gorilla biscuit Walter starts trying to shift to quicksand Were you guys about the bands that would come in and start shifting things beyond just like the fast hardcore straight edge stuff. And how was that taken by people around you? Like as some of these bands try to go into what they would eventually use the term post hardcore for. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say that was the reason for mouthpiece and resurrection and like maybe even lifetime, like all that, all those new age bands that uh, were from New Jersey. I mean, I, I was close enough with them that I, I think I can say like there was an element of that those bands that was reactionary towards these guys that said they would never change you know and it's funny because you know that was their platform meaning like the youth crew was like look at look at those guys in the 80s like the early 80s like they let you down we'll never let you down and we were kids so we were like they're never gonna let us down <laughs> so so then when they did it, we were like, oh, and, you know, you're too young to to realize, like, this is just fucking life, dude. Like, it's just the cycle of life. Like, it, some people stay on it. Like, you know, Tim McMahon stayed straight edge, and a lot of us didn't. And we went the same route that of all the people that we thought were such jerks to us. You know, like, we got out of it. And we're like, eh, it's kid stuff. Like, um, So, you know, I would say that um, when, like, all the bands broke up and like kind of moved on to post core or, you know, even like Gorilla Biscuits kind of like, you know, playing every few years with like Purcell on guitar and, you know, Sammy on drums or, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like it, yeah, it was just kind of like, well, this is not as exciting as it was before. Um, so I think that again, like mouthpiece and those bands were like, well, we're going to keep doing it. And so I would say that those bands were a reaction to, to that. Um, and I mean, I had nothing, I, I don't know, like, I don't, even back then, like, even though it was a kind of a bummer and all that, like, even, I, I don't, I'm trying to like articulate this without sounding like a moron, like, 
even when I was a kid, like a good example is like when Dag Nasty put out that record Field Day. Like yeah. I remember when that came out, all these people were like, fucking sucks. And they hated it and like got really angry. And like I, I was 16 and my reaction was just like, it's a bad record. Like, <laughs> like it's not that big of a deal, dude. Like it's just a like a good band put out a record you don't like. Like that's it. But obviously there was maybe a little bit more um, weight behind like um, like what like a, a youth group band was putting across maybe. Um and then to kind of like, whatever, um, stop doing whatever, being straight edge or whatever. Um, you know, I guess it was upsetting to some young people, but you know, whatever. Uh, I I didn't dislike any of those bands, like Quicksand or Into Another. I just like, by that point, I, I don't know, if I wanted to hear prog rock, I'd listen to real progressive rock from the 70s, like, <laughs> that was my vibe like you know like i'd rather go to the source but um yeah and then i think you know that the other thing maybe with that like whatever the change of the decade is that there seems to be like these doorways that everybody went down like once like 1990 came and it was either like krishna sub pop like you forget about hardcore and you're like sub pop or like uh i don't know just the Grateful Dead or drugs. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like It just seemed like there was like a doorway that everybody went down. And like, then there were people like me who were still, I mean, for that early part of the nineties, like I was definitely was like, yeah, like bring it back straight edge, you know? Um, but then even that to me got kind of old. So I think it's, yeah, like I said before, I think it's inevitable with, with, with the majority of people, I think it's inevitable that it, like maybe you, you get a little bored or, you know, get into other stuff. But then there's people that live it forever. So who knows, you know? Now, because this is a, a topic of today when they discuss like the mainstreams in, in a, the mainstream and what like bands like Turnstile and the new bands that have the TikTok, they always reference, I know you've probably seen the, um, the Dan Ozzy book, Sellout, and they'll talk about the influence of you you mentioned sub pop, but also SST and the stuff that would have mentioned grunge coming from the underground and getting to the mainstream. Did you see that the same way? Did you feel the same way? Like you start seeing bands that were on these small indies getting to the majors and then the influence of the, the MTV, whether the headbangers ball later won 20 minutes in the early nineties and how did that affect you or what you were thinking at the time? I don't know if it affected me at all, but it was kind of like there, you know, obviously like post Nirvana, there was just the feeding frenzy of like, what is it? Like, what's the new thing? We need it all. Like, so you just saw, you know, uh, I don't know, bands of all colors <laughs> or, or sounds like just being like brought up. And I, you know, I remember like hearing, you know, whatever, like, uh, like when Jawbox got signed to a major label, I was like, really? Is that going to work? Like there was a lot of stuff. Like when I would hear about a band like signing to a major label, I would just be like, okay, like let's see how that goes, <laughs> you know? Like, um, but there was just so many bands of that era, whether again, like whether it was like a um, like Green Day or like L7 or like, uh, like the dudes from uh, like Barry from the Necros had that band Big Chief. Like they got signed to like Capitol Records, like, um, it didn't really affect me at all. Like I didn't, like, I wasn't upset that people got on major labels. Like, yeah, it didn't, 
yeah, it, or whatever. It didn't, it didn't bother me. But the, you know, the whole thing is like a lot of the bands that I liked, especially in the early '90s, were very concerned about that. You know, like I loved Born Against and and Rorschach and Citizens Arrest and stuff like that. I was actually going to ask like, you if you started to side to more towards that. That's good you brought that up. Like you were starting to get into the ABC No Rio, and that kind of side of the the New York hardcore end of things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you know. I think the thing is also with me is like, you know, I, I saw Agnostic Front for the first time when I was like 13. And then by that point, I was like 18. And I'd seen Sick of It All every weekend. And that's nothing, it's not a slight against them. I fucking love Agnostic Front. I love Sick of It All. I still listen to that stuff now. But I think it was just like, well, I, I saw a lot of that already, you know? And, and that it's funny to look back on it now, but it was really kind of exciting, like that that like ABC scene in, in some aspects of just the music being really good. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, whatever, when you, when you, there were a lot of flaws to that scene, but there was a lot of flaws to everything. Um, but nonetheless, I dug that stuff and, and I got friendly with those people and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I got into it. I wouldn't say like I was like fully immersed in it because I was still in like New Jersey mouthpiece straight edge world, you know, on the other side. And I kind of like flitted between the two. Yeah, I just um, yeah. I was thinking about because the proximity of you and the and the Hiltzes that if you got yeah, and I, and I figured you knew Hiltz and his, his sister, so I figured there was a little bit of influence from that. But I also think there was a little bit of like that scene doesn't get covered as much, obviously in the annals of like the hardcore world. And it kind of had a, a, a kind of classic emergence, you know, like, yeah. Hey, over here's fucked up. These places are getting shut down because of this same bullshit violence. So we're doing yeah. these bands. And I think some of the boldest things, whether it was right or wrong, was the ability for a band like born against to kind of check sick of it all as much as it kind of becomes like a zine drama thing, because yeah, that shows, you know what they say, the term talking to power, so to speak, like, hey, we're doing our thing and we yeah. don't give a fuck about your thing. That's a bold thing to say, as you said, because sick of it all, basically, I mean, at the end of the 80s, throughout the early 90s, you know, they were like one of the top, top of all bands. So for a small band to do that took real fucking balls. And I, whether whether or not you side on it, it's also just that's the most punk rock thing you could do at times, right? Yeah, I mean, I think if you talk to Adam today he probably like you know those guys aren't like that was pretty cool like <laughs> yeah. if you talk to adam and charles they're not like well we really run that one like they because <laughs> at the end of the day like let's fucking face it sick of it all one dude like you know like they're still doing it like they're still touring the world and they're you know they never put out a record that was like oh we're gonna go in a metal direction or this direction like they put out consistent hardcore records for years and you know are still at the top of their game so you know, they, they won the game of hardcore. <laughs> in a way. That's a great way to put but, it. Yeah. But like, I mean, whatever the, yeah, I, like I was saying, I don't think like Adam or, or uh, like Charles or anything think what they did was, was like, like they won, won something. But, you know, I think the one thing that they always talk about is like, you know, the one thing that it boils down to for us was censorship. Like they didn't like the idea that, they were going to, you know, in effect records, wasn't going to put a, cu a curse word on a lyric sheet so they could get the record in a mall. And 
that's just a slippery slope, dude. It's really, you know, like it's hard to say who's right and wrong in there. Like if you leave that record in a bit, like it can be the same way as like I was saying, like at a listening booth in, in Quaker Bridge Mall, like a kid could pick up that sick of it all record and be like, what the hell is this? And like have his mind blown, you know, like that's the slippery slope. I guess you have to pay to get your stuff, you know, out into the open outside of like, you know, a DIY record store, you know? Um, but you know, whatever it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like all that stuff was perform. Like it, I don't know how to put it, but like, I, I, I don't know if performative is a bad way to put it, but like, here, here's the things like, um, like it was the equivalent of like, of a guy in front of like a J like say fucking push a T or somebody's having a concert and there's a dude out front. who's like, this guy's already big. He's over with here. Check me out. And like, tells him to download like you know hey check out my band camp like i'm the real thing like this guy's like already you know playing a stadium or whatever and it was almost like that in a way of like you know sick of all gnostic front are playing like at the ritz and like technically it's like born again standing outside being like we're really hardcore like we're playing in a basement down here like come check us out uh so it was kind of like that in a way you know what i mean like in in that performative like playing roles kind of vibe i don't know no, I think I, I think we're on the same page here. It's kind of like you're gonna have a band who has the edge of saying, "Well, well, fuck you, we're not gonna go that route." I think you saw that a lot in the heart attack stuff that Kent McClar was doing, the MRR guys, the way they would things they wouldn't cover. It was similar well, it, to that. Yeah, and I think like because in the past couple of years, I've very like I, whatever I've got I've delved back into that kind of early '90s thing of like like post Born Against, like the like Gravity Records, like. I guess it would be proto screamo screamo or something. But um, like I wrote an article uh, about that band heroin in the San Diego hardcore scene for a British magazine this year. And I'm doing liner notes for um, a couple bands that were from the nineties now, like universal order of Armageddon who were from Maryland and click Attat, they're from San Diego. So this early nineties kind of whatever it would be proto screamo post born against thing is kind of getting a wave going now and it's really weird because i would think it would have happened 10 years ago but you know i think the whole thing is with that 90s thing that we're talking about like it was you know born against or whoever you want to say like set this precedent of like diy and then everybody was like well we're gonna go double down on that you know like of the diy thing like like, you know, we're, you're not going to play shows over $5. We're not going to play shows over $3. Like, you know, like <laughs> it just got to the point where like they doubled down on the DIY so much that they like just did not leave a history of themselves. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, like it's, it's awesome that like heroin and these bands like Merrill Hinder and like they would just drive around with a silk screen in the van. And once they were done playing, like you got a shirt, we'll make your shirt. Like that's just red, but it's not going to get you to the next town. <laughs> And also, like, you're just, like, I don't know, like, you're just almost leaving, like, these, uh, I don't know, just, like, weird little mementos town to town, <laughs> like, and you're not really, like, leaving a history of your band, if you get what I'm saying. So, like, I think that's it with a lot of this stuff. It's just, like, a lot of, like, I have a nephew who lives in Philly who's into hardcore, and, like, you know, I remember first telling him about that stuff, like Mohinder and like heroin and that gravity stuff. And he was like blown away by it and he didn't know about it. And 
I think that's why is like these guys were just so doubling down on the DIY vibe that like they left no trace of themselves, which, you know, you can look at that as being totally cool or like being kind of like, well, there's probably somebody now who would enjoy this. They should know about it. You know, so it's, it's weird. Well, I think that kind of ties into the, the bigger eventually body of work that you have. Is that because of the scope of what, you know, your lived experiences and like what would come from writing is you're able to give life to these kind of things that could have been buried. You know, it's, it's like, um, one of the first things that I I really started attaching to besides zines was the few punk rock books that were around. And, um, geez, over 10 years ago now I booked the meat men and I was on the phone with Tesco and I said, Hey, do you have one of those touch and go books? And he straight up says, have my cash in hand and I'll give you the book when I get there. And I'm not kidding. He rolled up to Union Transfer and he's like, you got that cash? I got your book. Like, But in that book is everything that they put down from that zine. And it's that in itself is just legendary because there's things that completely, if if you never looked at it, you would never know half of what people were into at the time. You would never hear, you would never hear someone's opinion on a band that you've never heard without these kind of things. And I think you touched it on greatly is in the, in the drive to be like not always super DIY, but be the anti whatever they thought was commercialism and hardcore. They've buried the, they've given the sands of time an easy chance to bury their whole entire legacy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that might not be what they were shooting for was a legacy. I, you know, what do I know? But it's also kind of, you know, you know, it's funny in that in the way of like a band like like again like I keep bringing them up but like that band Heroin like when they were around like the records kind of purposely had this look that they were like arcane or like there was no information you didn't really know it was like a mystery until they came to your town and you saw them and like I guess that's the issue is like how do you reissue this stuff in the present day and like I think uh the issue a lot of people have that I've talked to who reissue this stuff is like, well, how do you preserve that? And I'm like, you don't like, yeah. like it's been, it's been 40, 30 years. Like let the history be known. Like, you know, yeah, you made an impact back there of being like this, like, you know, arcane kind of weird band, but like now everybody wants to know the history. Like the young kids want to know the history. Like you have to put it down in like a cultural uh, frame work for them to understand it. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's the way it should be. It shouldn't just be like a record in a, a sleeve then, and then you choose your own adventure, you know, <laughs> like you got to give somebody a little something. Where do you, where do you go through the nineties with hardcore? And when do you, what, what do you ever get bored? Do you roll into the two thousands? Like what's your story up until where you start getting more into the world, the dirty world of adulthood and what comes next? Um, not long. I mean, pardon me. Um, like I said, I was like friends with all the, like, you know, mouthpiece and everybody. And then I, whatever, stopped being straight edge. (laughs) So I was shunned and, uh, and like, yeah, I would say the last kind of hardcore stuff or like hardcore based or hardcore culture or whatever you want to call it stuff was like what I'm talking about. Like that kind of like, um, you know, church unitarian church basement cabbage collective like uh that kind of you know hardcore stuff like i thought that stuff was kind of like pushing the boundary of hardcore 
in the way of like it was still kind of loud and fast, but it was a little more artsy and it had more room to kind of like express yourself. Like it wasn't like you know whatever Catholic meat and potatoes, you know, youth crew hardcore, tough guy hardcore, or whatever. But I would say for me, like, um, once once like my friends, like when the floor like. And I'm friends with those guys, and I'm still friends with them. Like, when the Floor Punch guys were like, hey, we're going to have this band Floor Punch, and, like, it's, you know, we're going to bring back 88, and da-da-da. Like, I was just like, I, I, I was there in 88. <laughs> we were all there, like, 88, 89. Like, I, I don't need to live it again. Like, but I guess they did, and that's fine. But I would say, like, that's when I was like, when it was like a revival of a revival was when I was like, eh, I think I'm going to step away um but yeah and then i just kind of got into i don't know like other music like i got i basically like stopped paying attention to anything that was made in the present day i think i just got really into like music from like the 60s and 70s like psych rock and like um like jazz and shit like that um so you were and so then, you were getting hip to like the things that would be like the precursor like way before punk like way deep into the, the 60s yeah yeah um yeah like i mean i already knew about like stooges and mc5 and all that kind of stuff but like you know i think the whole thing was at that time uh there was a zine called forced exposure it started as like a hardcore zine in boston and like i was saying like about all these other guy people like it started as a hardcore zine in the mid 80s is when it got into like the sonic youth swans kind of art rock pre-indie rock thing and then they started distributing records and they were distributing a lot of these reissues of like bands from the sixties and seventies that basically were like rock, like primitive rock bands, but they, the records might as well have been punk records. You know what I mean? Like they were putting them out on their own and they had like these like kind of like DIY looking covers. And like that appealed to me because it reminded me, I guess, of like punk and hardcore. And it was just like that. And like, it was a DIY record. It was just like a psych psychedelic rock record or like, you know what I mean? Like, I thought that was totally cool. I think now, like, I think that, that, um, that, that category, now there's a category called real people music or something that I guess that falls into. Um, so that was like where I kind of went in was like that. And also like jazz records at the, you know, from the sixties and seventies that were like put out, you know, by, by the, the guys that were, you know, playing on it that were just like these paste on covers and stuff. Like, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Um, so, and I, I, you know, in Philly, like I would say, like, you know, like Silk Breeze Records definitely had an influence on me as well. And Tom Lax, um, and Philly Record Exchange. So, um, yeah. So like, I would say that whatever that is, like 94, 95-ish, like I'd say 95, cause 93, 93 or 94, I was in a band and that was almost like, all right, I was in a band. Now I can, now I can get out of hardcore. Um, what was the band you were in? Uh, we were called Chain to Thread. And it was basically like mouth. It was like me running mouthpiece, basically. Except Fair like, except, except like uh, instruments were changed. But we, yeah, whatever. We played a few shows and we did like a split seven inch back then. Did a demo whatever did it, but like, did I, it you, give you the uh rush or the endorphins you were hoping for How, what was your experience like with that 
No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, there's, there's, I love that answer because there's so many people. And it was like, yeah, I was in a band. I'm like, how do you feel about it? Nah, it, it wasn't really worth it. Well, yeah, it wasn't. It didn't take with me. Like, like I said, like, obviously the writing took because I kept up with that. Like, yeah, I didn't, you know, as you can tell, like, I'm a little bit of an awkward dude. Like, being on stage and having people look at me kind of freaked me out. And I, it just, yeah, it bothered me. So, but I, I felt like I had to do it. Like, it was almost like I did it. And then once the band was done, it was like a year later, I was like, eh, I don't feel like like going to, to a hardcore show again. But so, yeah, I, I just got into older, weirder music. And I did a zine about that um, called the 200 pound underground. And yeah, I don't know. And then like somewhere, yeah, I, I started so late. Like it wasn't until like my early thirties that I started to get like paid for writing. Like, like I, I wrote stuff for like the village voice and then like kind of went on from there. Um, and I would say around that time I was living in Brooklyn and my next door neighbor um, was Fett Rich Warwick. So all of a sudden, like I was like, Oh, I remember, like I knew who he was and that was when he was doing that parts unknown label. So that kind of like, whatever, like kind of got me back into hardcore, like him kind of playing these stuff and being like, like that connected with me more than like the stuff that like I kind of left on in the nineties, you know? Um, so that's kind of like where I jumped back in, I would say like, like a lot of older people, <laughs> like I think it was like that and like fucked up and, you know, bands like that, that kind of got me back interested in it. But I was always like interested in the history still. And I would definitely say again, like uh, with Rich, uh, that's what was the catalyst to do the first, um, the first book, the Detroit Hardcore book, came from like kind of hanging out with him, and he was friends with that guy Roger Gassman, and he edited uh, this magazine Swindle. Yeah, and he had and, the they had the oral your graffiti book. Roger was involved in. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, um, yeah, that was the catalyst for for doing the first book was was like meeting Rich and kind of other people in that hardcore scene of whatever that was like mid. So did you have any college experience in writing? Like, was there any like like formal writing experience aside from just honing it over the time with the zines and stuff? No, no, I never went to college. Um, the closest, it was funny because uh, when I was like, it was definitely right out of high school. Uh, Ken Salerno, famous yep. hardcore photographer. Great guy. Started, yeah, um, submitting stuff to Thrasher. And he was like, oh, like you should start like sending some writing in. And uh I think he, we did a mouthpiece article, like he did whatever, like it was his photo. It was like a mouthpiece article and maybe like an article about resurrection. And uh, it was doing, like I did those two articles and they paid me and I was like, wow, like maybe I'll write for Thrasher. That'd be cool. And then uh, I don't know, like, you know, I don't, sometimes like even as a kid, I didn't know how the real world works and I still don't in the way of like, you know, they let me write two articles that, you know, I pretty much, just handed in and they didn't ask me for it. And then they asked me to write about another band. And I was like, I don't like that band. And they're like, okay. <laughs> they're like we don't. But they're like, yeah, big deal. Like everybody writes about stuff they don't like about. And I was like, yeah, I don't <laughs> like, again, I was 18. I just thought like, that's how the world worked. Like you do stuff you like and you get paid for it. So that was uh, the end of Thrasher. I think. <laughs> they didn't call me back after that. So it wasn't honestly, like I wasn't until like, like in my thirties, that um, I started submitting stuff to the Village Voice, and they started publishing me. And then it was like Swindle, 
And then it like the ball went rolling from there. What was the first published piece? Uh, published piece would probably be like a mouthpiece article in Thrasher. That's like no, I meant like from the Village Voice. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The first one was actually the first published piece of the Village Voice was a a review I wrote of the Germs reunion, like the when the Germs got back together. Yeah, they had the guy who who played him in the movie sing. I reviewed that, and uh, at that time, Chuck Eddy was like our whatever like old school rock critic from the 70s and 80s was the editor at the voice and he was like this is fucking hilarious like we're gonna run it and i was like i mean i sent it in cold like i was like hey maybe you guys would want to use this and he was like oh this is hilarious we're gonna like we're gonna run it and i was like oh okay like that just you know and then like from there i think oh uh after that i i got like um when that first a7 reunion happened uh i did like a full page article about that and yeah there's a bunch of other stuff i did for them and then yeah like swindle and yeah i did i don't know i did stuff for the guardian i did a bunch of other stuff uh now i pretty much just do stuff for uh this magazine in britain called the wire and i'll do stuff for like Bandcamp daily um but yeah i don't know like i said before i've been doing these liner notes and uh it's it, whatever it's it's good work they give you know they give me enough time to to work on them so so yeah it keeps me busy did this thing with the detroit book did someone bring you the idea or did you just have this ruminating like where was the birth of the idea for that book because I, a lot of people and, and it's cool that what you did and I, and I mean it when i say it because obviously we're talking california huge mm-hmm. huge explosion in punk rock and hardcore yeah. 3,000 people at the Olympic Auditorium. You know, yeah. New York Hardcore will go around forever and say we're the best, but A7 was really small. Pe- very few people really went to the Peppermint Lounge, and CB's was right. kind of small. Detroit yeah. kind of gets overlooked, but there's some bad fucking things happening in Detroit yeah. that have such a big impact and influence on hardcore that it was awesome yeah. to see the way you put it all together. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, no, I mean, like, honestly... Um, that whatever, like Detroit hardcore, like we'll just use that title to be make it easy. Like, like touch and go fanzine, like the meat men, necros, negative approach. Like that was kind of when my brother was bringing those records home when I was little, like those were the first things I connected with, like probably because the bands like necros and negative approach were not that much older than me, you know, and the touch and go zine definitely was juvenile and like, you know, a lot of bathroom humor. So as a kid, I thought that was cool. Um, but that was the first thing I really connected with. And also like when I would kind of like find out about other music and, and became more of like a music fan than like a hardcore kid, I guess. Um, like that stuff always like stayed with me. Like I always like that was like my touchstone or whatever to hardcore. Um, and then like, again, like meeting like like fat rich or like somebody like Matt Summers, like these younger guys that were like, like so deep into like, you know, the Midwest hardcore thing. Um, I was like, Oh, it was, you know, like it was like, Oh, like my time has come in a way, you know, like I always felt that way about that mid two thousands hardcore thing of like every kid all of a sudden cared about like the most obscure hardcore band in the world. And like, you know, when I actually liked that band in the eighties, like I, like, you know, if I was, I had a, a show and I saw a kid in like a cheetah chrome motherfucker shirt in 2005. I'd just be like, 
where were you when I needed you? You know, like, <laughs> when I could, when I need somebody to talk about this band about, but, um, so yeah, I would say like finding out that there was like this whole younger generation that was just as like intrigued by the history of it as I still was were like, Oh, like, you know, I could do something, you know, whatever I could do something with this. Um, and that was it. Like once Roger at Swindle kind of gave the, the green light to do it, that was, you know, I just started emailing people and get in touch with them and piecing it all together. And yeah, it was originally an article in Swindle magazine. And when it, I mean, they edited out a lot of it cause I, it was really long. And then, you know, once it, the article kind of got around, people were like, Oh, like you should try to expand that into a book. And, uh, I did it. <laughs> like I, I listened to him. Did you, so, did you even have an idea how to outline what was going to be an article to a book? Did you just go for it? What was the game plan there? Uh, well, the, yeah, I didn't know <laughs> how to do that. So I actually, I got in touch with this guy. Um, uh, his name is Byron Coley. He's a, kind of like a rock writer, like underground rock writer, like old school dude. He was one of the editors of that zine I was talking about, Force Exposure. And I know that he had did book, done books. So I asked him, like, how do you do a book outline? And he, like, like basically gave me the whole blueprint, like told me exactly like down to like double space, everything. And da, 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 da. Like he told me oh, sorry, everything I had to do. So that's, you know, the funny thing is like, I followed that down to the, to, to the T and he was like, yeah, send it to this publisher, send it to that publisher. And I sent it to all these publishers and nobody, nobody responded back. And, uh, at that time, uh, to say that was when the mouthpiece discography was coming out on revelation and i think i was helping J uh, tim with some writing and i think it was tim who was like oh why don't you ask jordan if he'll do the book and i was like oh like i knew that they'd done the all ages book and i i mean i didn't know jordan or anything um and it was basically like me emailing him cold him call like, so to speak yeah, or like I was going back and forth with him already, like helping with writing this like mouthpiece um, press release, and also I was helping him edit that Burning Fight book. Oh yeah. So, so then I was like, oh, like maybe you want to do this, and he was like, yeah, and it was like easy as that, like yeah, we'll do it. And I don't know, and I just think it's funny in the way of like I sat there and like I spent weeks putting together that fucking proposal, and you know I should have. It, it it it's a it's an explanation to a lot in my life of like. I should have just gone with my gut and just done, you know, like I should have just went to somebody who was in the hardcore scene and been like, do you want to put out this book rather than like send it out to like a bunch of like foofy art, like art uh, publishers who I thought would be interested in it, but it got out there. So that's cool. When this book came out, what was the initial reaction for you? Did you get excited? Did you want to do more? Did you enjoy the response? How did you feel after this came out? Oh, I was really excited. Um, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like once it, like before it came out, it was like, you know, really, it was like number one on Amazon or something, which, you know, later on you find out it's not that big of a deal, uh, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I was really excited. I was like, oh my God. And like, you know, they were selling out of the first pressing printing pretty quickly. Um, so I was excited and like definitely like that summer, of uh, 2010 I think yeah like was awesome like me and my my wife we like you know we drove out to Michigan and we did a bunch of like book events there and 
and we had one here in New York and there was one in uh, in Philly that was a part of like Tuscovy's K police show yeah. and uh yeah, I don't know, it was fun. Uh people responded well to it. There was no like whatever negative vibe from it. It seemed like everybody was really into it. Um and it was cool to, you know, get friendly with like John Brandon and um and Tesco and all the all those people from Detroit, like all those people in the Midwest were beyond gracious. They were like super nice people. Um, so I was, I was excited and yeah, I wanted to keep the party going. Like I, I just started like making proposal after proposal and like, I don't know, like after, after the Detroit book, I wanted to like write a book about, um, I don't know, like kind of like proto metal rock, like blue cheer and stuff like that. And that didn't really go anywhere. Um, so yeah, I definitely wanted to like keep it going and definitely from that book, like people got, uh, more interested in having me do freelance writing. Like I, I started doing like a regular column for vice. Um, so it definitely helped and like it kind of, yeah, pushed me in the, the whatever. Yeah, it legitimized you for certain. And it kind of yeah, gave a lot exactly. of weight, gave a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, I think that that's the hardest thing about doing something DIY for me or anything. And I, and I share your thing. Like, why don't you just fucking do a DIY or what? Like, you know, like you see people do things professionally. And I, I had to think about it the same way. Like I can't do that. Or, you know, like I think that once you get off the ground doing something, it gets a lot easier. And um, this one is uh, completely revelation records and you can still get it. It's also on Amazon. Why be something you're not Detroit hardcore from 1979 to 1985 and i remember it's so funny i was on house arrest when this book came out so nice. i devoured this like within a week and a half because oh, i had nice. like extra time after work i was basically working at the yeah. philadelphia airport pouring concrete all day come home and you know if i didn't have something to do i put my i put a lot into that and it really changed my perspective just in general because you always hear the the the, the two coasts oh you know it was us or this and now it's like, oh, well, no, Detroit had a lot, you know, and that's why I asked you earlier about the UK 82 stuff, because that you hear a lot of that in those bands and a couple yeah. of them bands even played in Detroit at those times, you know, like there's a lot to be said about what would happen from Detroit that would have influenced the Midwest. And obviously it definitely affected um, people who were really early in the game into picking up records like Yamakai, like, like it's a lot of people that were aware of these Detroit bands, that I think I don't you didn't unearth them, but you definitely breathe fresh life into these bands that kind of got whisked away with everybody romancing CBGBs and the California scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing with Detroit is there were so many bands, but like so so little of them actually put out like a record or anything at that time, you know. Like that's the one cool thing I would say about the that why well, be something that you're not book is like uh like there's a band that's mentioned there called bored youth and like their demo like they recorded um a demo and a seven inch that was supposed to come out on touch and go that never did and a, a label in chicago uh alona's dream like reissued all that stuff and like some of that stuff yeah it kind of got like unearthed and uh i mean obviously negative approach you know they're they're huge still um so yeah i i i I understand what you mean. Like there was definitely a lot of band, a lot of bands from that area that didn't get the, 
the the respect they deserved, I guess. And also, like, it is like it is the first kind of like the seeds of like that kind of DIY hardcore thing of like the DC guys and the Detroit guys kind of going back and forth between each other, like driving these long distances to you know play shows and record each other and stuff like. I'd say that's where it all starts and like, you know, that whatever you consider like of the aesthetic of hardcore, you know, is, is inside, you know, is in that, you know? <clears throat> so, yeah. Now you said that you would eventually start um, submitting and then you eventually, how did you link up with bazillion points? Well, at the luckily, and again, this is all like just a weird coincidence at the same time I finished up the Detroit book, I knew when I, okay. When I interviewed Tesco for the Detroit book, he told me like, Oh, I'm trying to, you know, do a book, like a, a touch and go book. And I guess it, it wasn't getting off the ground. And then the Detroit book, I finished it. And then like the meat men or Tesco V's hate police or something played in Bordentown, New Jersey at like Randy now's record store. And I talked to Tesco afterwards and he's like, Oh, the book's coming out. Like this thing, bazillion, uh, bazillion points is going to put it out. I, I, at that point, I think the only thing bazillion points had put out was that Swedish death metal book. So I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And I kind of like looked into who it was and I found out, you know, it was like Ian Christie who like, you know, wrote that sound of the beast book and whatever. So that, that book came out at the same time. Why be something or not came out. So I kind of like, piggybacked onto all their um, promotional things. Uh, and I think, you know, that's how I met Ian at Christie from Bazillion Points. And uh, I don't know, I guess he saw I had some, uh, had some chutzpah. I don't know. I had a little spirit. So he actually was like, Oh, like what's your next book idea? And we were, we actually went back and forth with a few different ideas. And then like the New York hardcore one kind of stuck with him. And yeah, that was it. So that was kind of the, that was the hookup was through the touch and go book coming out at the same time as why be something you're not. And just kind of like getting to know Ian um, from that. The New York hardcore book is an interesting in the uh, overall annals because you have to read the book. You can't just, if you go to a chapter, unless you're able to, Oh, this, the way it reads for people who don't know. And I've said this on the show before is, you open up a page, like I'll just open up randomly. This one is New York Hardcore on the Road, represent New York City and the dance hard. And in lieu of a long paragraph where you kind of like do some flowery, you know, words and yeah. you allow the people firsthand. Yeah. So, you know, you got Russ, you got Russ Igley, you got Vinny, you got John Priscelli. And, and, and all throughout this book, you have some of the coolest flyers at that time. So, so I've always wondered specifically, and I've been, and that's why I was really. This is one of the questions like I got to ask you on the show: How the hell did you pick your subjects, and how the hell did you figure out what order to put these people in per chapter? Because you draw from a lot of different sources within the New York Hardcore thing. So, I always found it interesting how you decided what made the cut and what order to put them in. Hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know. I really didn't think I was like. You know, the whole thing with the New York hardcore book, like you mentioned how I just kind of made it a raw oral history. Like I didn't put anything between between the chapters to kind of like help it flow or anything. And I that was just me like out of respect in a way, because like you said, like 
I'm just some guy from New Jersey who was a fan of New York hardcore. Like, I'm not going to interject my opinion in there, like, say that this happened or that happened. So, you know, that was the reason that it just kind of like starts out like that on all the chapters. And I didn't, you know, I didn't write an intro. I had Freddie write the intro, you know, like that was the whole thing. So, and having said that, like, I don't think I was in any position to be like, that person can be interviewed, but that person can't. Like, you know, like I was, honestly, I think it's just like opening up Facebook one day and being like, sending like a fucking message to like everybody I could find on there. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the floodgates were wide open for that, you know? Um, so yeah, I interviewed anybody and everybody did any, did anybody and everybody get a say in the book? I think, I mean, even if it's a sentence, I think so. Um, so that was it. And like, as far as the order of everything, like of the, the, the chapters, it's like putting together a puzzle kind of like, and again, like, like everything else, like I'm just going into this, like blind in the way of like, well, this is what works for me. So this is how I'll try to do it. So like, I would transcribe an interview with somebody and I would just like, after I was done, I would just like, please, like, I would just kind of go through it. And like, if they mentioned dance, like moshing, I'd be like, Oh, okay. Cut and paste. And I would put it in like a folder that was like about dancing or like, Oh, like, Oh, they're talking about the Chromags. Oh, I'll put this in this folder. It says Chromags. And then like, once I went through every chapter, I, or every like interview that's, and then like, I had the raw thing of like what everybody said about whoever, is like when I just started to like play around with it and like move quotes around and like try to have the story be told as, you know, as thoroughly as possible while also kind of maybe showing a couple sides to the story as well for you to kind of like, you know, like you can figure out who's telling the truth here, (laughs) you know, like I'm not going to be the one to tell you. So yeah, I think that was, it was just, uh, like I said, just going through the interviews putting them in different folders and then like, you know, like shaping, shaping them into chapters after that was, uh, was kind of the, uh, the method for that. And, and also, you know, for the straight edge book too. I think the oral history end of it really does sink in the best way to examine this stuff because these are our first, you know, this is our, this is the extant history, so to speak from the mouth, from these people, you know, like, None of these people yeah. are writing, so you kind of have to go off of their word. Whether or not everybody in New York Hardcore's word is gold certified authentic isn't as important yeah. as hearing it saying, like, you reference a lot from Robbie Kripkasher, who was like a short-term yeah. guy who played an agnostic front or way early on. Uh, you yeah. have an unpublished um, content source constantly referenced from the guy Scott Horton. I guess he did like a yeah. – and, and these people have to go out – well, you know what – with uh, Scott, you gotta he's gotta go out and ask a question the way we're asking questions. Yeah. So then it's on you and your best description to refer back to us. And that's the best way to do this book because some of the fun of talking to some of the first generation New York hardcore characters. I grew up on South Street. Like when I say grew up on South Street, I mean like when I was coming from metal into my early teens, in uh I was going to school at 12th and Market in Philly. So I spent my time on South Street and I ran into a lot of people and eventually got a lot of this New York hardcore history from Ralphie from the mob and met 
Jamie Davis and all them guys. So these are the people who I listen to. So their word is God. And then I have to take their word and transcribe yeah. it. And it, did that really happen? You know, like, and I yeah. feel like New York Harker has a history that is best presented in the oral fashion. But I do yeah. wonder if when you're doing this stuff and obviously with the stuff that uh, Scott recorded that you used, if you had questions like, oh, is this legit? Or are we just going to roll with this? Like, uh, Yeah, I mean, there was definitely stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think from doing this for so long, like interviews and stuff like this, like my bullshit detector is pretty strong. Like, so, you know, if someone tells me a story about, you know, whatever, 15 guys beating the crap out of Ian McKay or something, I'll be like, yeah, right. Like, whatever. Like, that's not making the cut. Like, so, you know, there are a lot of stories that people told me that sound, you know, yeah, that, that are, that sound hilarious, but like, are they true? Probably not. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I ran past like Roger, uh, Roger Moret and like, other people like stuff people would tell me like did this happen is this you know is this like whatever did this actually happen like blah 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 blah. and like some people you know most people were really helpful with that um but i get what you mean like there is some stuff where you're like you gotta accept it blindly or just be like well if that's what you say i guess so i'll i'll believe you um but yeah once it gets like into like crazy you know like crazy stories of like, you know, fighting 15 guys with a toothpick or something. Is yeah. Like now I'm you're like, like, all right, now you're taking yeah. it too far. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think like my bullshit detector is pretty good. These like, you know, of knowing what's, uh, what's the truth and what's not. Now, um, another thing I, I thought was really cool. And this is a personal thing is I have constantly been told by a lot of the same people that you interviewed and, and that Jay from, um, Jesus Christ. Now I'll forget the name. Uh, oh, Crackdown? Jay Crackdown single-handedly yeah. might be one of the world's hardest moshers, but no one's ever documented. <laughs> this is constantly like old guy Siv. Oh, but dude, you've never seen it. I wish you would have seen Jay Crackdown. So I love that there's yeah. like these little small, like this isn't really a big deal, but it's cool. Yeah. You used even the small nuance is my point that you yeah. got in this, the book along with you covered stuff from like the mad and that whole loft steam that was also happening right. in New York hardcore. And it constantly right. gets kind of not tucked away, but unspoken about by people who weren't really involved in it. But I really yeah. like the perspective that you put onto it because it shows a whole nother scope of other things that were also kind of put into New York hardcore when they didn't even really call it. They didn't know it was loud fast. And I, I love that you actually added that, even though some of them bands are really kind of arcane and less known. Yeah, but I mean, like again, like you got to show the roots of it and all. Like, yeah, like I guess some people just want to think like New York hardcore started with like the Chromags and AF or whatever, but there is like a backstory to that, and I think that's what makes New York hardcore so interesting is that you know people think of it as like this you know tough guy like scene, which you know that's what it became. But like you know, the first people that are considered New York bands are considered New York hardcore, like, you know, the misguided or, uh, or like, you know, the like, you know, even the stimulators or something like that. Like not to say that they're not tough, but like, this wasn't like, uh, these were just basically younger people who missed that first punk wave. You know what I mean? And like, this was their time to shine and it just 
sort of kind of lined up with hardcore happening in another year or two. But, you know, it's, yeah, like you said, like there's like the mad or like the misguided or the early version of heart attack or like even like stuff that was happening in Jersey, like the, like that band, the worst and like stuff like that. It was just a uh, punk that happened in that little gutter area or whatever between like people thinking punk died and hardcore began, you know? So that's another aspect of it is I feel like when you when we take it as far back as we talk about the sick of it all stuff, some of the biggest names take up the most space. But like just a little, just that little bit you did on the worst, because mm-hmm. you always hear about everyone with the big victories. Oh, this band's great, but then you you hear about this band, the worst, and it, and it's good that it gets coverage because it shows that it's not just about the same bands over and over again. Yeah, 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 and also like you know, there's a lot of bands that didn't really go anywhere that, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a sick of it all because of them. You know, like, you know, there probably wouldn't. I I don't know, but like you know mental abuse were a big band for sick of it all. Like, does anybody really know about mental abuse? No, not really. But you know, the story should be out there just like a lot of these other bands. Like, you know, like it's all whatever. It's all part of the history. It's all part of the, the, the story, whether it's like, you know, sick of it all or the worst or, you know, whatever. Nihilistics was without, without nihilistics, there's no shirts ever. No, totally. There's no, to me, there's no New York hardcore the nihilistics in a way like, because again, like I, I, I heard, I heard that record as a child. Like I, I was a kid, like I was like 11 or 12 and like, but I would think like once I heard sick of it all and raw deal, like that's what it reminded me of. It was just like this, like I'm just fucking life sucks. <laughs> you know, like I, I just can't get by. Like, so like, I think they're like kind of like the, 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 whatever the blueprint or definitely like the bedrock of that kind of like whatever people consider that New York hardcore like vibe of like, just, you know, rough life. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely, I mean, like Paul has said, how, you know, what a big influence the nihilistics were on true terror. So yeah, definitely. Now the response to that was it, was there any older New York hardcore people naysaying or was it kind of overall, overall well accepted and everybody enjoyed the 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 entire thing uh you know the, i guess that's the funny thing is like when i told people like i'm gonna do a book about new york hardcore you know they're like oh you're gonna you're gonna beat up you're gonna have it no, no nothing like that happened <laughs> and for the most part the dude like you know everybody was fine like was fine with it like whether you know you know whatever they say behind closed doors whatever but they're nice to they, you know they were nice to my face. I don't know. Like they all had nice things to say about the book to me. And um, what was I going to say? Yeah. I mean, there were, don't get me wrong. There was like a whole friggin' Facebook. I remember like a whole Facebook thread started by someone who will remain nameless uh, about the book and whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, like if you're just going to boil it down to what it is, it's just bitter people. Like, you know, it's just bitter people uh that are upset that they didn't that that some dork from new jersey did it before them i guess <laughs> you know i think that's what it is um there yeah there were some people who said some things but it was so minute it didn't like it didn't make any um impact you know what i mean but i mean that book was a a really big success people loved it um which was just really um 
personally, it was very weird uh, for me. Um, but I'm, you know, like I'm glad that people liked it and it got a lot of, you know, got a lot of coverage like everywhere from like the Village Voice to like New Yorker magazine. Like it, you know, it was pretty ridiculous how it kind of you know, kind of got beyond my control and even like bazillion points in a way because like they couldn't keep up with printing the books and stuff. So it was, it was pretty weird. It was, it was wild. Well, as far as content goes, you didn't go short. The production of it is great. The pictures are outstanding and you did something that a lot of people don't do in that you, you know, along the, all the usual things that come at the end of a book, you really did give the next generation. And that was what was this in 2013 this came out or something like that or even earlier earlier 14 14 yeah so th- when this came out you know the, the hardcore scene was going through a, uh, its own world but a young kid now no matter what point in time they find this book they have the blueprint right here they have the 50 essential seven inches which i think was fantastic the 50 essential full lengths like this is the stuff that it's just a great roadmap for someone yeah. who could find this. And I think that that's something that does get overshadowed because I do have a lot of these kind of books where somebody will talk about this thing, but you're like, well, where do we start? Like, if you don't know, where do you start? I think it was fabulous that you put that in there. Yeah. That was actually not, that was Ian Christie's idea. Cause uh, if you've ever saw that, that book he did about the history of heavy metal um, sound of the beast, like he did the same thing. Like it'd be like top 10 German thrash records. Like da da da. Like, you know, he just gave like a blueprint for everything. So Hats off to him for having that idea. That's a smart idea. And it really does. It really does lend to just help people out when you, uh, obviously we talked to you brought it up that you were a straight edge and you weren't straight edge. Did you have any conflicts when you were talking about when you eventually would do the book? Did you have any like a, thoughts about it? Like, I like, I mean, it's neither here nor there, but I, th- I do think it's important that people, mm get perspectives from other people about straight edge. So I'd like to get your perspective of once being straight edge and now doing an entire book on it. Yeah. You know what? It's funny. Like what I said, you know, in the last answer I gave you where like people said like, Oh, like, Oh, you're going to write a book about New York hardcore. Like you're going to get beat up or something. Like I went into the straight edge book being like, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'm going to walk through this shit. And it was, it was the opposite of like of that in the way of like I got a lot of pushback from people I interviewed. Uh, I got pushback from random strangers who just sent me messages on Facebook like I'm not buying your book because I know you're not straight edge and all this stuff. And like in my mind, I was like, man, I just thought everybody grew up. <laughs> like I really thought like all the people that I know who are still straight edge who might have been upset with me back then are not upset with me now. Like. So I just thought like, oh, like nobody cares anymore. Like they're just going to want to read a book about the history of this stuff and that's it. But not <laughs> not true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I did I have a, a conflict with it? A kind of. And it was funny, like my my way of resolving that conflict, I think, was calling Tim McMahon and being like, would you think it's OK if I did a book about straight edge? And he was like. Yeah, I think it'd be cool. And I was like, fine, click. Yeah, so it's if Tim McMahon yeah. says it's good, we're good. Yeah, exactly. If the, if the Godfather says it's good, it's good. Um, so that was fine. But um, yeah, there was like pushback. Like once the book was done, there was pushback from like 
people who saw it and like you know like i said there would be people who i don't even know who just send me like and i don't even know why i fucking engage with them like would just send me like a message on facebook like oh i saw you write you, you wrote this book are you straight edge no well then i'm not buying it great why did we have to do this um <laughs> like there was just a lot of stuff like that where i was like like what the hell like i'm just trying to write a book here like the hell's the issue um so yeah there was some more pushback from that i would say than the than the new york hardcore book um and you know like looking back or thinking back like there was just a whole period of that straight edge book that i was just like like stumbling blindly through <laughs> like pretty much everything after me being a straight edge <laughs> so like it was like me kind of leaning on a lot of people to <clears throat> like what direction to go to and, and go you know on it and stuff so you know i'm glad that people like that book um but there was a lot of other stuff going on when that when that book was um, being put together. Like, uh, like ha halfway through it, uh, I found out that I had multiple sclerosis. Like, so that kind of like <laughs> kind of threw some threw a wrench in there. Um, so that kind of like threw me off. And then I like I handed the book in, and they gave me the book back and wanted me to add like three more chapters. And it was just like it was really stressful. So like my memories of that book are not pleasant. Um, doesn't sound nice. Yeah, but and I don't, but I don't want it to sound like I don't like the book. Like, you know, it's it got people seem to like it, and uh, you know, got some good reviews, so that's cool. Um, do I want that to be like the last book I put out? I'd like to do another one, but you know, we'll see. Um, but then again, you know, not a lot of people get to do at least three books in their lifetime, so maybe I should. Just be happy with that. <laughs> Are you still freelancing and sending things out? Uh, like I said before, I'm just doing stuff for this magazine in Britain called The Wire, and uh, once in a while, I'm doing stuff for Bandcamp Daily, and I, I like I'll do my Substack once in a while. But you know, I got like whatever. I got like other stuff going on right now, like health wise and all this other stuff that like I need to concentrate on more. Um, and also, like I said. Uh, I, I've been doing like um, liner notes uh, for a label that like is kind of like just put me on like a I don't want to say whatever they're just kind of like giving me assignment after assignment so that's kind of keeping me busy um, so yeah that's that's as far as writing goes that's that's what I'm up to is just like the wire Bandcamp daily substack every once in a while and like doing liner notes for a numero group so that's it. Uh, I, I in reading to just double check to make sure we didn't have anything from you that that we couldn't talk about. I noticed that you did a a short bit of press for a twenty four because of Green Room. How did you get into yeah. that? Very uh, I, again, it was Roger Gassman who suggested me to um, this uh, this company called the World's Best Ever that was doing the promotion for a 24 and for that green room movie. And it was very weird because it wasn't, um, even though I guess he got in touch with Roger was like, Hey, who could, who could do this? Because he suggested me. So he like sent, that was like when I had a website of my own and, uh, this dude sent like, like, you know, it's like an email to my, to my, uh, to my to my website like hi like i'm from a24 films and i'd like you to do a podcast and i'm like sure whatever like you know like 
It's just some random weirdo. But uh, it, it was legit. And I got in touch with him and basically told me, like, all right, like, uh, we're, we want to promote this movie, Green Room, which is about, like, uh, like a hardcore punk band that gets held hostage by a Nazi skinheads at a show or something. And uh, what we want to do is have people from, from bands be interviewed about, like, their worst tour experiences, and they want me to host it. And um, I did it. <laughs> I don't know. They, uh, they offered to pay me well, and they flew me out to L.A. to do, uh, you know, the interviews for a week. So I wasn't going to turn that down. Uh, so, yeah, that was how that, that came together. And it, But, it, you know, it was just to promote the film. Like, I think there was like eight, maybe eight episodes. I don't even remember. Um, and then it just, you know, went away. Uh, it did kind of put me in a position like to kind of sell a podcast, but it never went anywhere. Like I actually um, recorded a few podcasts for Sonos and uh, yeah, it never went anywhere. We recorded like two or three episodes and then they decided they didn't like it. And that was the end of that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's what, how the, the green room thing uh, came together and I was pretty much in charge of like the inter like who got interviewed and all that stuff. They basically just put the ball in my court for that for me to just you know pick people and interview them. So that was pretty that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it was a really it was a really fun experience. And um, you know, it's with like definitely I mean at least with me like with hardcore punk or underground stuff like you usually treated you know you treat everybody like a like a peer or equal. And like that was the first time like I felt like uh, like people were treating me nice because they thought I was like somebody, <laughs> which was weird to me. Uh, like you know, it, it was just a very weird situation. Like the where they recorded the pod, like the studio where they recorded the podcast in L.A. was where um, what's his name, Michael Bolton, was recording a new record. So I I, I got to meet Michael Bolton. You know what? <laughs> so fucking random. Yeah, it was just weird. I'm like, why are we talking to Mike Judge in this studio where like the code, like, like, you know, there was like a, like a, the, there, it was just like some studio and like Michael Jackson used it and they had like a picture of Michael Jackson there. And I was just like, why are we here? Like, this makes no sense. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was an interesting, very uh, weird experience. Now, I, I, obviously I answered some of the questions that I had. I think Substack. I mean, I, I you see Norm Brandon brought back Any Matter fanzine with the Substack. Uh, I follow a couple other Substacks. I think that's one of the coolest new mediums for people like yourselves to do creative things and allow people to come support you and the work. Yeah. But I, 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 w I did want to know why you never just tread it off and did the podcast. Was it just the time? Was it just the you covered a lot of the things in the books because you have a lot of like depth yeah. of information where. You know, there's there's podcasts, obviously the guy, what is it, like grew up to be a punk and they knew those really arcane record things. I yeah. think that there's a I think that there's a lot of people who enjoy the unearthing of stuff that's more uh in the tucked away in the corner and with some cobwebs that I think that you could unearth, you know? Yeah. I don't know. You know, like there's something about podcasting that really doesn't appeal to me. I mean, being interviewed is fine, but you know, like, 
like after that, I tried to do a podcast with my nephew being like the producer. And we did a couple episodes. Like we did, we interviewed like Brian Baker and uh, who else? Ari from Lifetime and a few other people. And like, I don't know, like there's just some, I, I don't know. There's something about the, the format of podcasting that I personally don't feel comfortable with, like in being like a host or anything. I don't know what it is. It's also the same way, like, you know, I, I DJ'd on the radio for a while on like FMU on WFMU and WPRB and like like I look back on it, I'm like I didn't enjoy that. Like I didn't I don't know. There's something about it, like the writing is easier for me. Like you can uh you know, you can connect with somebody without having to talk or look at them. Fair enough. <laughs> so I think that works for me. Like and but there's people who do podcasts who do it who do it great and like I don't know like I've tried to do a podcast now one two like three or four times now and it always like fizzles so I just take that as like it's not meant to be you know there's other people that I think you know do it like you know you meant like you or Damien from Turned Out of Punk and, and like Jason Traeger like those are people that I think do it like I want to listen to that and whatever I don't know I just don't I don't want to do a podcast, right? Fair enough. <laughs> listen, everyone has one, so I don't exp- I don't need to explain why not. I yeah, just no, I just thought the, the the breadth and width of what you know. Yeah. It would be it would, you yeah. could have definitely pulled out some cool shit. Um obviously in hardcore there's a lot of podcasts and sometimes they kind of overlap each other. And that's another yeah. reason why I think the things that you have to say come with learn learned and lived experiences. And a different mm-hmm. perspective, so it would add something to it. For me, yeah. the the cool thing about Tony Ritman and what he's done with put with the books is, like I said in the beginning, you're you're archiving things that someone hasn't touched on. You know, we've heard a million different stories, a million different ways, and it, and it, it's part of the culture, kind of like the passed down style of, oh yeah, you hear this, you hear that, but to have a book on your shelf to pull out and go. Oh, what did Ralphie say about that? Or, you know, like the collection of different people that you had in the straight edge book is another great example of just things that people are going to be able to pick up. And now with Amazon just being the place you get a lot of this stuff, imagine having to not go to a record store anymore. And that's how I got most of my stuff. I still go to, I still go to record stores now and I actually go to the book section a lot because there's old zines, there's old books and you go, Holy shit, you know, but I think, the speed in which is happening for hardcore today can benefit from a Tony Rettman. There's another real big reason why I just show because we have a lot of younger people and they're always asking like, where did you get your, I'm like, where do you get my book? at? you go to Amazon. If you don't go to Amazon, you start looking used. So you added, you added like hard, legitimate words to a page that now people are going to be able to pick up. And, And that's a, that's an important thing for a culture like ours because it is still, it's punk rock. It's a folk culture. If, if it's not written down, it's going to go away. And yeah. and, and for that alone, I, I hope you do realize that you had a very positive impact in this. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, when you're closer to the situation, it's a little harder to grasp. And I think if you are, like, if I were to be, say to you right now, like, yeah, I know that. Thanks. Like, that would, that would be, I don't know, that'd be a dickhead thing to say. <laughs> so, you know, like, I don't know, like, I've done all this stuff, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's down and people can pick it up and, you know, learn. You know, at the end of the day, like, 
and I've said this before, like most of my writing and like doing the books, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's for me in the way of like, I want to find out all this stuff. And I know that there's other nerds that want to find out this stuff. Like, you know, with the Why Be Something You're Not book, it was just <clears throat> my brother having those touch and go fanzines. And there was all those like inside jokes in there with like Tesco and the guys from the Necros. And it was like me just wanting to find it, find out about those inside jokes. Um, so like, that's it is just like, it's just me being a nerd and wanting to find out more. And now it's caught up to the point of like, this is now I'm doing this for stuff that I did experience, which is kind of weird, but that's, there's a lot, still a lot of stuff in the back of my head from those days of like about a certain band or certain show or like a band that I liked that I wasn't friends with and like, you know, what their story was and how they got together. So, you know, this is the world I know. So so I'm going to be, you know, I'll be hanging around for a while trying to piece together the history. It's just, you know, I need I need a few breaks here and there, you know. <laughs> Speaking of that, did you actually enjoy the oral history style that the City Gardens book came out in? Did you enjoy how that was laid out? Like, what was your perspective on that book when it came out? But, um, no, I, w- I mean, if, if, like, as far as, like, oral history – like oral histories go like what was like the catalyst or like why I like that format. It would be like, um, uh, uh, there's a, a oral, like oral history about this woman, Edie Sedgwick, who was like a part of the Andy Warhol, like crowd, like factory crowd and whatever. She just basically became like a, like, like a drug casualty. And, uh, there's like an oral history book about her. That was the first oral history book I ever read. And I was like, really, I thought that format was cool. And then there's like the Please Kill Me book yeah. by Legs McNeil, which was like, that really was like, whatever. Like that put it in perspective for me. Um, and there's, I mean, I'm trying to think of the other, there's some other good ones. There's that one, uh, Punk Rock by John Robb. I think that one's pretty good. Um, but the, I mean, I think there's other like non-punk oral histories that I read that I like, I just like the, the format and like, yeah, I liked it like, there would be no way I could interject myself into it. You know, like you're, I'm just assembling, I'm just assembling the words in a way, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah, that's what I liked about it. Now I like that perspective again, because there are a lot of people who do these things. I felt that way about zines towards the mid nineties was instead of letting the person who was being interviewed talk, a lot of people put their own influences on it. And we're like, I'm the guy who did this. And it really did it really did turn what could have been cool interviews into some obvious, the the shit that were like the shit stirring where, Oh, did you see yeah. this? And then, you know, it became like not as cool as just reading something for the sake of just being, Oh, this guy's perspective is cool. You know, I always driven, I was always driven by the stories that would make me want to check more things out versus the shit talking style of it. Or, you know, like I was never, dri- I was never interested so there definitely yeah. is that flair in the New York article book specifically where you let the people speak. And I think that that's a really great way to cover all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I wasn't there, so I, I, I might as might as well give them, you know, give them the, the, the mic for it. And yeah, whatever. Nobody needs, there's, there's enough people these days, like revising their own histories. Like I don't need to revise I don't need to do it my myself, you know what I mean? Um so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the the oral history format definitely kind of yeah, lends itself to 
just being like the conductor or something like that, you know? So it's cool. Is there any project someone ever approached you with that you had to straight out turn out? Like say, I don't even want to be involved in this or no? Uh, yeah, but it's, it's not, it's not like the subject matter. It's more like, I don't know, like, um, I guess hardcore still operates in this way of like, you know, when you were a kid maybe and like somebody was doing a zine and you were doing a zine and they were like, oh, like, even though you never met them face to face or you were pen pals, you would like, whatever, do a split zine together, or like collaborate on something. Um, but these days, like I get DMs from total strangers like, hey, I got this idea for a book and I want to do it with you. Like, I want to do this book with you. And I'm like, I don't know you, <laughs> you know, like. Like stuff like that. Like I get stuff where people send me a DM. Like I got this book idea for a book, but you know, I don't know how to do that. So like, maybe, you know, how, I figure you know how to do it. You've done books and like, I, I don't know, like that approach is very strange to me. Um, but there have been people in the past couple of years who have done that, who've just like sent me a DM on, on social media, like wanting to do like collaborate on a book. And I'm like, I don't know you. <laughs> if, if you were someone I knew maybe, but you know, but as far as like a subject matter or anything, um, no, no. I mean, like I, like I was saying before, like there was stuff with Ian Christie, like, um, like some book ideas we had that just didn't like, we would have done them. They just didn't really come together with the, uh, with like the subject, uh, subject matter or the, the band or whatever. I think, um, there's always going to be stuff that you're not going to get a chance to do, but it would be good to see you put your, your, your points on before you stop doing all this, because a lot of what I see written today is by publicists who pay writers to do just like whatever the current thing is. And, you know, it's always going to be that way. The publicity side is just getting really big in hardcore right now. And I mean, and, and and there's no disrespect to the people that are being publicized, the bands themselves. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the thing I'm getting at is it would be cool to see you in this space because mm-hmm. you were there and you've seen so much of it that yeah. it's organic and natural for you to talk about the scene. And I see so much like there was this GQ interview, not an interview, my bad, uh, a piece written by your daily, whoever got the, you know, whoever got the, the schlep, whoever just got it that day. And, mm-hmm. and, and the shit they wrote was ridiculous. And I, and I would hope yeah. to see someone like you get involved in that pipeline of articles and things written in magazines, because people obviously want to know about this culture, but the mm-hmm. people writing about it, they're not, they're not equipped. They're not a part of mm-hmm. it. I think that that could be something cool on an aside. If you ever get to do a book, because you've had touched on all these different aspects and you've lived it, Mm-hmm. it's not, Oh, I got to Google this. You actually can just write from what your own experiences are. And I think it would lend a lot more than, I mean, it. I think this, the last two years since the opening post COVID of shows has done nothing but people writing stupid articles. So I hope if you never get a yeah. chance to do a book again, I, I really hope that you can kind of get your name out there in that world, because I, I it would be appreciated to see a real veteran or hardcore who actually mm-hmm. can, talk on all the different levels and have a better perspective regardless if it's GQ or not. I, th- I think you'd be way more genuine and authentic. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like if someone wants to, someone wants me to write that stuff, it's fine. Like 
I'm not in the position anymore or like I'm, I'm not cold, like sending out proposals to people I don't know or like things like that. Like, like I said, I'm just dealing right now with like the people I know. And, uh, you know, I think that's just, like I said, there's a lot of stuff going on with me that I just need to focus on the, like what I know, because that's, uh, you know, what you're touching upon is just saying like, you know, like, Oh, if someone could be in like a mainstream, you know, um, publication and write about hardcore in a respectful way. And, you know, all this stuff, like, I tried that. It didn't work out. Like, you know, like when, when the New York hardware book came out, like I had like people from the guardian and uh, maybe it wasn't GQ, but one of those kind of magazines. And, uh, but they wanted me to write about like, like new metal or something. Like they would be like, Oh, like we want you to write about like, they told me about like some new metal band. And I was like, okay, going back to like the thrasher thing that I was talking about when I was a kid. Like I was like, why like and i would like send them pitches for stuff like how about this and they're like oh no like we want you to write about this like it had nothing to do with the history of punk or hardcore it was they just had nothing to do with that it was just like hey this guy wrote this book and it's getting a lot of juice like let's get him in here that was basically like what it was it wasn't like this guy seems to know a lot about it you know oh it's a jobber thing they're like oh your name on our article will do good but we want the article to be the way we want it all right well fuck that then yeah, no, that's what I mean. Is like, it's not, yeah, it's not worth it to me. And and like I, when I say it's not worth it to me, and like that, I'm like, I don't mean like I'm so great. It's not worth it to me. It's meaning like, like in the, like when I did when I was really going heavy with the the freelance writing and like the green room stuff and all that stuff, like it was just a lot of um, rigmarole that I went through, and I don't again like. I don't look back on it like like they were they were glory days. It, to me, it was just like being put through the mill, and also like just kind of finding stuff to write about. That like uh, like you know, I had to I had to come up with something weekly, you know, for like Vice and Noisy, and like I would just be like eh, what eh? like I it was so difficult for me, and it was so like and that was at the point when like Vice and Noisy was definitely getting into like not wanting to talk about punk or hardcore and like whatever the trend was that week. So, you know, it. I don't know, man. Like, I understand where you're coming from, but maybe I'm a little older and a little bitter, bitterer. Actually, <laughs> right I back to... exactly what you said. It's not what you want to do. You yeah, know, it's not I... what you want to do. You don't want to do it. I back it. Yeah, and, like, my thing is, like, yeah, like, I'll read an article in something that gets, uh, gets it totally wrong or, like, it's a newer or, like, someone who's, like, a new hardcore kid who thinks – uh, like he has everything figured out and like he knows the history and like but it's just like again like the history that he's made up in his head or whatever like I see that shit and it doesn't like uh, yeah it used to get me angry now I just like shrug my shoulders I'm like you people deserve this <laughs> like, I don't know like that's my attitude is like like mainstream media if this is like if your interest in underground America is like finally like finally now you're interested and you're just going to get some schmo to write about it and it's going to be a, like a bullshit you know, middle of the road article. That's what America fucking deserves. Like, you know, I, I don't that. know. I fucking love that. Um, that's the way I look at it these days. Like, you know, I don't get bitter. I don't get angry about stuff. I mean, I mean, I do. Don't get me wrong. But uh, on the other hand, like, you know, that if that's what if that's what the world's gonna come to, then so be it. Like, you know, like 
whatever. We can have our cool little thing over here, and you can be over there and think you know what it's about, but you don't, and whatever. I actually did. That <laughs> actually was part of what I was going to help close with. I think with all the stuff that you did, you did put a great, real, authentic seal on these things. And I find mm. that the modern era, the TikTok time, these people that exactly everything you just touched on, it doesn't change the real people who are active every day doing this stuff. And it doesn't really change too much for the young kids because they'll learn eventually down the road or they'll drop out and they don't, they won't give a fuck ever again. But it does bother me that the mainstream come in and they want their little piece of the pie of saying, Oh, well, this is this. And they write these articles and, and it, and it, and it just makes them look completely inauthentic. And I wonder if there was ever anything driving you in those books to add a stamp of authenticity and say, Hey, if you're going to, if you're going to tell the story, at least do it this way, or is it just organically the process of the books and you really care less about anybody taking away anything else like that? Uh, I think it was an organic process and it's something I guess can't be faked, you know, like if you have a genuine, like if you have a genuine interest in something, you're going to, you know, obviously put your best effort into it. Um, so I think that's it. Like I wasn't trying to write any wrongs or, or, you know, anything like that. I mean, I'm not having said that, like uh, I do remember reading the American hardcore book the first time and just being like, like this deserves much better. <laughs> and that was my attitude with that, mat with that book. Um, but having said that, I wasn't trying to like, uh, by doing like the Detroit book or anything like that, like I wasn't trying to like, usurp that book or like show that like like you know show them how it's done or whatever like it you know that book for whatever anybody thinks of it like really did kick down the doors for like you know books about literal you know american hardcore so you know you got to give it that that credit um but yeah it was just out of you know a genuine interest and a, a love you know like it, it did it almost does go in like a in a trajectory of like you know the first thing i was interested in was like detroit and then like it was new york hardcore and then i got into straight edge so it like kind of goes through the trajectory of like my hardcore uh, existence as a you know teenager um obviously you have some health shit going on and i hope that you get through it in the best way and um i hope that you continue to do with the things you do for hardcore and if they're not for hardcore for yourself um mm. I, I know that this is a long interview for you. <laughs> so no, I know I'm, 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 I'm happy that we had you on there. If no. you had one thing that you could write about another book, have you ever even thought like, have you even got to that point where you're sketching the ideas of what you would do next? If you could. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of ideas and I've made, I've made proposals again, made proposals for books. Um, you know, I, I, I've had ideas where it's funny, like, um, you know, I put together a proposal and I'll show it to somebody and they'll be like, why do you want to write a book about this? Nobody cares about this. And I was like, I, I didn't think anybody cared about the other books. I did. So <laughs> what's the difference? Um, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't want to say like my idea. And then the next day, like somebody's like, I got a book idea. No, 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 no. no. I, I just want to say like, you do have, you do have things in the mill. You're not sitting at home going, I don't no, even I'm know. What like, no, no, dude. I, it's not like I'm like, like, listen, I, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm still going to do stuff. Like I'm not like giving up on anything. Like if anything, it's, uh, 
it's just to have something to do. You know what I mean? Like, like I've said, like I've been saying, like, you know, I, I've been having suffering with some health stuff for the past couple of years. And like, the only thing that helps is just taking my mind off it to like write or do something creative. Cause like, you know, I was doing, I've been doing this little label, uh, no idols, which is just like a small thing with like cassettes and like limited vinyl. And, you know, uh, yeah, I'm just doing stuff to, to stay busy. So I'm not just like, you know, watching the uh, law and order all day or something, you know, like I'm just trying to stay busy. So I'm not like, uh, giving up, like, will I do another book? I don't know. Maybe like, uh, you know, um, but I'm definitely going to, you know, keep writing and still contribute to like, you know, the underground, like, cause I don't know. I don't know if like, if I'm really hardcore enough to be considered hardcore anymore. <laughs> um, but so I, I like the, I like the overall title of like underground. Um, so um yeah i'm still gonna be doing stuff i'm I'm not going away um what is up with the what is up with the next couple things coming up with the label is he have anything going on uh there's things that like we've been talking like you know it's it's all for fun so you know it's you know it's not like anything uh that's gonna coming out any day now like before i did i did some stuff with uh Poison idea because uh, I was doing work with them through uh, my friend Mark who does TKO Records. So I did a couple like small Poison idea things. Did something with that band uh, with uh, Instead. It's all like old hardcore stuff. Uh, I'd say the only thing that kind of is in the pipeline, but it's been in the pipeline for for over a year now, is uh, me and uh, a guy Mark who does that label Beach Impediment. We're gonna um, do put out this band called Disarm that were from Virginia Beach in the mid eighties, they did like record a couple demos and it's, it's good. Like kind of like crossover, um, like kind of, th- kind of thrash, but, um, uh, like maybe a little like discharge final conflict kind of vibe, like peace punk kind of thing. Um, but that's been taking a while for, to get off the ground, just compiling the tapes and, and, uh, getting all the flyers together and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's all I have planned. And like I said, I've been doing some, some writing for numero group, and uh yeah i don't know you know like i have been thinking like it'd be kind of cool to do maybe like a a book or something about like that era of the 90s that kind of like maybe starts with born against and kind of ends in 93 or 94 um because i don't know it is kind of an interesting period in hardcore um but yeah i don't know yeah that's i I take everything day by day pretty much (laughs) with with writing so did you uh, since you brought up Poison Idea? Did you enjoy the books that Jerry did? Oh, they were incredible. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. I don't think he gets how good those books are because I, I reviewed them for uh, again for this magazine in Britain, The Wire, and he like read the review and he was just like, "Yeah, I guess like you know you have to be kind of far away from it to understand you know understand what a big deal it I guess like what his life was you know." But those books I thought were incredible. I think he's a really, really t- uh, good writer. Yeah. Uh, our friend group, one by one, saw it, bought it. I got the one with the shirt. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff is so off-putting, but real and honest. That really yeah. just, in a, in a world of hardcore books where you have some hardcore guys that save the princess every single weekend, beat up everybody, you know, yeah. won a lottery, lost all the money. Yeah. There's a realism and a stark, pure sadness at times 
in those books that just make it so fucking unbelievable that it obviously is true, but also hard to put down at times. Yeah, that first, the I think the first book was the one that I was like, Jesus, like it was like really hard to get through. But uh, yeah, no, like that's the thing is I think in the past few years now that there are like guys who are doing their auto, like punk hardcore guys doing their autobiographies, like you can tell the ones that are like sincere and the ones that are like, uh, you know, being done for an advance. You know what I mean? Because like, uh, you know, some of these books I, I, I read and I, you know, I get the feeling like the guy is just basically trying to get to the word count that's in his contract, you know, like, like he's like 7,999, all right, I'm done. Like, like they're just getting to the point that they're going to get paid and that's it, you know? Um, but then there are books like, like Jerry's or like, I think Rogers is probably the best, uh, one of the best out of them as well. Uh, Rogers was impossible to put down. It was so good and it flowed so well and it felt yeah. so organic at no point. Did you go, I don't know about that. It just felt it felt pure and honest. Even the stuff yeah. that kind of went over beyond the band stuff, it really yeah. did feel like. And obviously, I spoke to Roger a bunch over the years with shows and shit. Yeah. He has that ability in storytelling to draw you in. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And like he showed me some of that when I interviewed him for the New York Harker book. He was saying like, "I'm trying to put together a book," and he's like, "You mind looking at some of these chapters?" And I was like, "Yeah, like I'll do that." And like, I remember just reading through them and being like, this is going to be like, this is going to be good. Like, this is going to be awesome. So yeah, I think this is one of the best out of, uh, out of the bunch. I think um, for me, just hearing that you do have the same opinion, just validated. Cause I, sometimes I see shit and I'm like, is this really just cause the guy wants to get paid? Like, is this, this for the, is this really just for the advance? Because some, yeah. some of the stuff just comes disingenuous. And it's a shame because yeah. if they just put time into things they would like, it would come out better on everybody. The people covered, the people spending the money to read it, and then someone yeah. else is going to come by and go, oh, well, that, that's already been covered. But has it? Or is it just something, yeah. you know, I, I'm, glad that you um, I'm glad you take that same exact perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it definitely feels like in the past few years it's uh, it's been like that. But I think that's just because, again, like what we're talking about, like there's more interest in, in hardcore and punk, you know, like, it's no different than, you know, if you read like a rock, like, you know, I, I've read a lot of like rock autobiographies and they're the same way. Like three quarters of the book is something. And then the last quarter he realizes like, or whoever they are realizes like, like, Oh, I got to finish this up. And they just like, you know, finish it up with a bunch of bullshit or they, they shoot their loader. Like the whole story is told in three quarters of the book and they have to, you know, have 80,000 words for their, uh, cause their contract says so. So the next, couple chapters are just about, you know, like the spin class they took or, you know, like it's just like making shit up. Um, so, yeah, it's no different than like anything else, I guess. It's just it's trickled down to hardcore. That's all. If people wanted to contact you to do stuff like you said, you said you did liner notes. You, are you yeah. against writing for people who may be interested in this kind of thing? No, I'm, hey, I'm, I, I, I can say yes and I can say no. I'm a big boy. So, yeah, like, I it's love fine. That. What we'll do um, is we'll con we'll put your contact info like your Instagram and then people can just DM you if they want to get in touch. Sure, yeah, no problem. Like, yeah, like maybe I'll answer you, maybe I won't. But <laughs> happens, you know? uh, I'll leave you with one last one. What do you think the most rewarding thing has been from all this? Um, 
like uh, just ha- hardcore or the writing or I mean it's it's or... a it's a general statement like what do you think the most rewarding yeah. aspect of this entire based everything we talked about in this conversation be it the small yeah. band you did the, the like anything what do you think the most rewarding aspect of all this has been um I mean obviously like life lifelong friendships or even like lifelong uh, acquaintances <laughs> in the way of like you know you run into somebody after 20 years even if it was just you know, their band staying at your house or something like that. You know, it's nice to have some connection. I guess that's all maybe like people of our generation, maybe that's all we have since we didn't have to like go to war or something. <laughs> it's like, you know, like our old man, like our old, like my dad or something had like, oh, like me and all my friends are in Korea. Like <laughs> now I'm like, oh, like me and all my friends are at Unisound. Um, Holy so, shit. What was your favorite thing about Unisound? Jake. I'm yeah, trying to get. I'm trying to go to his building. We tried post COVID, and he was a little nervous. Trying to get me and Sonny from Hate Five Six to go down oh. there and do the Jake story. Ah, oh, dude, that'd be. So he's still around, then, huh? He's I still have his telephone. I'll give you his telephone number. He's fucking great. Oh, no. He has. He has. Oh, he tells me he has every single show on board recording. And if actually the first time I talked to him, he said, "Well, I can't be on your show because I'm doing my own podcast soon." And that is that never happened. So, yeah, my favorite Jake. I mean, I'll get back to what you're saying, but like when I think of Jake Hain, I just think of. Uh, I mean, did you ever go to any shows there? No, I missed that. No. I missed everything. Yeah. Everything I grew up on was you missed GB, you missed hardcore, you missed Unisound, yeah. you missed the airport, you missed it. You would almost thought that I should have just fuck, told myself to go fuck myself and just. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, he would always be like, we're all friends at the Unisound. Like you get up between all the bands and be like, we're all friends here. Like, da, da, da. And, uh, there was something happened where like a bunch of like Nazi skinhead showed up or something and threw like threw a brick at him. Yeah. And I remember like the week mouthpiece played there and he was like, I, I mean, it's horrible that it happened, but I remember him just being like, I got hit in the head by Nazi. So he kept saying Nazi. We were like laughing. Oh, you think it's funny? And I was like, no, I don't. I just think the way you're saying it is funny. Um, but yeah, I mean that place was ridiculous. How, why we drove so far to go there every weekend? I have no idea. But um, anyways, I'd say like yeah, the lifelong like the friendships that have lasted a while, and like the connections of like again like doing a book about New York hardcore, doing a book about straight edge, and like getting in touch with the guys from Instead after like twenty years, and then being like oh hey like you know like starting off like like it's you know nineteen ninety again, which is that that's nice. And, uh, you know, as far as the books go, it is. It's just kind of like making those connections with people that that uh, weren't my friends back then, but were people I admired or, like, you know, thought were, you know, really cool or whatever. Like, to, to talk to them now, and, you know, we're all kind of in – most of us are all in the same space um, mentally and as adults. Like, you know, we all kind of respect one another, like, which I think is nice. It's not like I'm a rock star and you're still a piece of crap or something. Um so that's that's cool and um just to have a, a like again like i'm 50 i turned 51 yesterday like happy to still have a, happy birthday thank you um i wasn't I was, just, I was just trying to make a point that like i can still find stuff to do to keep me busy and it all goes back to to hardcore you know what i mean like it all goes back to that of like even if it's something like i've gotten really into like I just wanted something to do that had nothing to do with music or anything. So I got into like making like um, linoleum uh, block prints. And like, even that was like something I did when I was in high school, like 
I made like a pagan baby shirt with good linoleum print. Like, so it all goes back to that. The linoleum just, is the block that you do the stamp on, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's That's like so basically cool. making your own rubber stamp. Yeah. So like, you know, it all goes back to that. So it's like I always have something to do, and it's because of that. If that makes any sense, you know, like I always can do something where like I'm still so much of a nerd that like if I'm bored and I'm like I I just don't want to do anything. I don't want to write. I don't want to do this. Like I can just go online and like, oh look, there's like a, a zine archive website that I've never seen before. Like Canadian hardcore zines, 1980, 1985. Like that's my night. <laughs> like I can always find something to be interested in or like to to do, you know. And yeah, so the best thing about punk or hardcore is is, is that is is hardcore gives you the, you know, it's. <laughs> It's like a Votech school. It gives you the tools to life. Uh, yeah, you just gotta you gotta learn them and then use them. You know. Yep, exactly. And the tools are yours to keep. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I'd say that's it, definitely. Hey man, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate the time that you had to put into this. And, I, and right. again, the books have been fucking awesome. I have a. I'll show you the thing. I don't know if you can see it, but I got your little TR <laughs> on the on the book, and, right. and you know. It's the little things, but they matter because I I I I, re- I resonate greatly with everything that you said and the way that you put these things together because there are people all over hardcore that actually want to take the time and go through a book and you know uh, there was this old I don't know too old of a joke but somebody said on Twitter like in the last two years I academically studied hardcore punk or some shit like that but there are people that like me I have got like twenty something if not more books on punk and hardcore, like thick books and hundreds of zines and shit like that. And I really get excited every time a new one comes out, whether I like it or not, I get excited to see, am I going to like it or not? And I really do enjoy what you put out to the world. Yeah. Well, I will say this and you don't, you can put this in the podcast or not, but I did co-teach a class about hardcore at NYU for a semester that was one of the worst fucking experiences of my life. <laughs> so, That's so fucking cool. <laughs> academia, academia and hardcore do not mix. Um, it was not a fun experience. It was also not a fun experience because one of the people that I went into it with, who I thought was my friend, ended up fu- like screwing me over big time. Um, because when the class was over, I was like, uh, that wasn't fun at all. I didn't like that. And they were like, yeah, I didn't like it either. But then without telling me, kept doing the class with the professor oh, and like shit. for it and using also using the syllabus that I wrote and acting like it was theirs. So, so I would say that academia is uh, way more sleazier than freelance writing. <laughs> it fucking sounds it. I, I, I glad I never went to college. I have friends who I have friends who have very good paying jobs because they didn't go to college. I make a better living pouring concrete than if I went to school when I could have went to school. So I and it gives me the free time to read books. So yeah. yeah, you can learn what you want on your time. Exactly. That's that's what it's up. That's what's up. So you, yep. you're good with us doing the no idols hardcore for the Instagram. Yeah. Cool. Totally. Um, if there's anywhere else you want us to link us to, we'll link it to it and then uh send me a cool picture yourself for the okay. podcast and uh uh, I'm going to put a cool song on this and this is going to come out in a week, man. Cool. Sounds good. I appreciate it. And Thanks. It was a lot of fun. I hope yeah. you enjoyed yourself. I hope we didn't go too long for you. And I, no. I, I, I mean, if you need anything from us, I, I hope to help.
especially with the Dave Stein stuff, it is really important that I am going to get my ass moving on some of these folks that just did absolutely cool shit for hardcore and maybe get lost in the cracks as the world of the new hardcore kids is all over the Twitters and the TikToks and the Instagram reels. We don't want to lose this valuable history and these insights from people. Um, Tony Rettman does a really great job of channeling his ability to do these books and bring out the best. I can't, I can't tell you enough that if you are like still lacking or interesting and interested in the D- the Detroit hardcore scene, you got to start there. I mean, that book, don't be something you're not is fucking absolutely vital. And that includes all you kids excited about cold as life. No negative approach, no cold as life. No DC hardcore, no Detroit hardcore scene, no cold as life. Starts there. A lot of that stuff kind of gets missing and lost in the age of just being able to click and download whatever you want. Thank you to Tony for coming on the show. Apologies again to Nancy Brill uh, for not posting up. I I wish, sometimes I wish, I'd say that as a as a cutaway, sometimes. I wish I had the extra time or a speedier, faster way to get some of this stuff out. But I don't, and I lack, and I'm sorry for those who... Uh, are caught in it, which is the guests, and um, yeah, we're not we're not monetized, and I'm gonna do a whole side podcast thing later today. Put it up for midweek. See a lot of this stuff ruminating on the internet, worth touching on. That would just make this episode another thirty minutes longer. I won't do. So thank you to Tony. Check out his books, and thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Thank you to all the DIY real record labels who send stuff in. Thank you to Warren. And the real pure fucking hardcore bands that are still out there. All right. Take care. T I H C podcast for all the show notes. Bye bye.